1: Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Bonjour, bonsoir. Monsieur, mademoiselle, je m'appelle Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World of Sports. I hope everybody is doing great. I hope everybody is doing what they need to do to make this world, to make this place a better place to be. I hope everybody is listening, learning, learning, listening, shutting up, listening and learning so we can help our children's and our children's children and our children's 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 generation become the best generation of all time. Que pasa, mi amigos. Mi amo, a Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World and Sports. I hope that you're doing fantastic. Konnichiwa, my brothers and sisters, Wendell's World and Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Shalom, my brothers and sisters, Wendell's World and Sports. I'm your host. Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. Asawamaleka, my brothers and sisters. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to get into and talk about today. In the world of sports, I'm going to be doing my best. I'm right now, I'm injured. I'm emotionally hurt. I'm in a foul mood. I shouldn't say foul, but I'm in a saddened mood. I just found out that the cruise that I'm supposed to be going with my man, Marvin Prather, and his wife, Linda, I just found out that it has been canceled because of the Corona-19 virus about five minutes before I got on and started recording this um, podcast right now. So I'm a little hurt. I'm a little down. I'm a little disappointed. I was going to be going over to San Juan. I was going to be going over to uh, the places over there, the... Cruise was going to be for the 2nd of January, 7 days. My first time in a long, long time that I was going to be going on a 7 day cruise. The first time as an adult I was going to be going on a 7 day cruise. This past summer I went on a 4 night, 3 day, or 3 day, 4 night cruise. Over to um over to uh Ensenada and Catalina Island and it was absolutely fantastic. I loved every moment, every second of it. The food was delicious. It was so relaxing. It was something new, it was something fresh. It was just fantastic. I absolutely loved it. So now I'm addicted to To cruises, as far as as long as I want to live, I don't want to go anywhere else. I don't want to do anything else in terms of what's for vacation. I want to go ahead, go back home to uh, Maryland, visit my mom, visit my brother, visit my beautiful, wonderful, fantastic, intelligent, awesome goddaughter, Sydney Davis. And other than that, I don't want to go anywhere else except going on a cruise. The rest of my living, breathing life, I want to go cruising, 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 just like Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. So, little bit dumb, a little bummed about that, but we'll see what we can do to get through today talking about what's going on in the world of sports. And yes, I know it's childish. Yes, I know it's insecure. Yes, I know all the emotions and the feelings that I'm going through right now are ridiculous and dumb and and stupid. I got all that stuff, but you know what? Give me 10, 12 hours of getting this stuff out of my system. By tomorrow morning, I'll be a-okay, rip-roaring, ready to go and realize how blessed and how lucky I am to be in the position that I'm in right now, good or bad, in my life. So, there you go. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Let's get into it, shall we? Oh, by the way, I have a YouTube channel, Wendell Wallace. Just put in Wendell Wallace. I don't know, man. I'm still trying to get this shit done in terms of the camera work and everything else. I got my goddaughter helping me out in the future about trying to spruce it up a little bit. So basically what my YouTube channel is all about is about me rambling on, you know, similar to what I do now, except a lot less uh, time. I'm not going two and a half hours of uh, I'm not going two and a half hours of YouTubing of me, you know, looking into a camera and talking, talking, talking. Could you imagine looking at me for two and a half hours? I mean, especially if you're young, you're single, you're beautiful, young lady, middle-aged lady, looking at me for two and a half hours. You know how absolutely dreamy that would be. D-R-E-A-M-Y, dreamy that would be. Just joking, but uh, no, man, go ahead and check out my YouTube channel if you want to. It's Wendell Wallace, W-E-N-D-E-L-L, Wallace, W-A-L-L-A-C-E. I got about three or four Uh, clips up there ranging anywhere between 22 minutes and an hour just talking about what's going on just another way of getting my just another way of getting my voice out there and trying to make this podcast podcast grow doing the absolute best i can so yeah go ahead and check that out you can also check me out on twitter you can check me out on instagram you can check me out on my facebook page the window wall the show page a lot of stuff one of these days i'm actually going to coordinate this stuff together tie it all together so you won't have to be going here you won't have to be going there you won't have to be going over here you won't have to be going east west north south and all those type of things To find some content by yours truly one of these days i don't know maybe you might put up a website hey how about that so all of these things ...are in the works. I've been doing podcasts and podcasts and podcasts and podcasts. I've been doing all of these podcasts, and all I do is publish them and then go away, which is not good, which is derelict in my duties to try to maximize the potential of what I'm putting out for you guys. So I'm going to be turning the corner now as September rolls to October... And my life starts to uh, get down into somewhat of a routine. Finally got a little bit of unemployment money to ease my thoughts and my fears about what's going to be going on in the future and paying some past bills. So, you know, all of that good stuff is putting me in a better position for me to really concentrate more on putting some stuff together to help myself grow, to help this enterprise grow, to help build my brand. Boy, it must be great to be rich, man. And I have to worry about where you're next meal is coming from or you know when you live in paycheck to paycheck for the most part or living paycheck to paycheck and putting us putting a little bit of money away for the unforeseen bill that you're gonna have to take care of uh you know for those who have money and could cover all of that stuff god bless you man be thankful be thankful because living paycheck to paycheck it sucks and especially now with covid and uh people losing their jobs and Going through the hassles of unemployment and everything that goes with what's been happening in 2020, the year for a lot of people has sucked, absolutely sucked. So uh, hang in there, man. Keep your head up. Keep going. Keep moving. Be as positive as possible. You know, glass half full, all of that bullshit. And uh, I guess the next catastrophic uh, events are going to be happening in November. And we'll see whether we'll see what's going to be happening uh, with that situation. Either way, I think that... Uh, what am I talking about, man? Let's get back to sports. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Some things to discuss. The NFL and football are back in action. The NFL games... I like the NFL games so far through week one. Yes, they haven't been as crisp. Yes, the defense and some other things, the special teams and other things, haven't been as uh, crisp or glorious as they've been in the past uh, seasons. But when you have a awkward type of offseason, when you don't have any type of preseason games, these are the things that are going to be happening. But just the fact that college football and football are now back in action, and at, at least through one week, we've got to uh, have a chance to watch all of the games or watch uh, watch the NFL football for uh, one Sunday and moving on to Monday night and the season starting on Thursday. I mean, I think it's fantastic. I think it's absolutely awesome. And the level of play, if they can continue uninterrupted, will only get better and better and better. I'm really not into college football just yet. I've been thrown off a little bit by the NBA having this game. So later on in the podcast, I'll be talking about... The NBA, I'll be talking about the collapse of the Clippers, I'll be talking about the Denver Nuggets, I'll be talking about those type of things, but uh for the most part, I've been so enthralled with what's been going on with the NBA, watching the games every single night, almost the 40 days and 40 nights NBA playoffs, which you're used to seeing in the spring, May, June, April, that type of thing. Now, moving up in the calendar to where they're showing it in September and August and such, so... Everything has been thrown off that way, the Labor Day weekend, not having those marquee college football games to really, you know, Trump, you know, really celebrate the arrival of college football, not having that big time top 10 matchup threw me off a little bit. But uh, as things move on, as things get more copacetic, as things basically, the SEC starts playing football the last week of September, I'll be really getting back to uh, watching a whole lot of College football this past weekend really didn't watch too much, really didn't watch too much of it, but as I mentioned before, I'm waiting for the SEC to start playing. One of the conferences that are going to be back playing after they initially decided that they weren't going to be playing is the Big Ten. The Big Ten is going to resume with eight, with an eight-game schedule spread out over nine weeks, and teams are gonna be eligible to make the college football playoff. The conference presidents and chancellors on Wednesday voted to start their season the weekend of October 24th. They considered new medical information and testing possibilities presented to them this past weekend, B-U-L-L-S-H-I-T. The medical information and resources around COVID-19 improved significantly, especially the availability of rapid testing programs and it said the emergence of several several reliable rapid testing options eased concerns about contact tracing and increased confidence about having minimal interruptions during the regular season. All 14 Big Ten teams are now on track to play. Eh, you know what, man? Development around rapid testing has eased concerns of schools and areas with more restrictions around. Contact and gatherings, you know, Illinois, Maryland, and other those type of things. Look, man, this, I don't know, man. This seems, again, this seems dirty. I was one of those guys who said, you know what, I'm down with the Big Ten if they want to go ahead and uh, cancel the football season, if they want to do the right thing, if they want to sign on caution. I'm one of these guys, and it's come out now with my thoughts and feelings about the pandemic when people at the beginning, when they were ignorant to the fact of how potent and how serious. This virus was, and they were speaking about it's no big deal, and the flu is more potent, and and the flu kills more people, and I don't know why we have to wear masks, and I don't know why we have to social distance, and all of those type of things. And my always response and opinions to those things were, you know what? I'm the type of guy. I'm the type of guy. Now I'm the type of guy that would say I would rather be overly cautious. And then when everything is all said and done with this, look back and say, hey, you know what, maybe we didn't need to do this, or maybe we didn't need to do that, or maybe we were going a little overboard by being so protective in this area. I would rather be on that side of looking back and analyzing how we dealt with this uh, coronavirus than saying, oops, you know what? We should have done this. We should have done that. We should have taken this more seriously. We should have paid attention to this while people are dying, while the hospitals are being filled up to capacity and even more. I would rather side on caution. So, for me, when people talk about, you know, the risk is minimal and how many people are going to die when it comes to the Big Ten playing football and they speak about, again, you know, what's the big deal? My point has always been this. Why are we going ahead and rushing these student-athletes? To come back and play football when they're not paid athletes, when they're not employees. And basically, this is just going to be, you're putting the health and the risk of these quote-unquote student-athletes, these 18, 19, 21, 22, 23-year-old kids. You're putting their health at risk, what, for your enjoyment, for your entertainment, so you can have something to do on a Saturday afternoon? So a mom-and-pop store in Columbus, Ohio, or Ann Arbor, Michigan, or... Uh, Bloomington, Indiana, can uh, go ahead and make a few dollars because of the revenue that a college football game on a Saturday will generate for a, a town in a Big Ten, uh, uh, in one of the Big Ten uh, uh, neighborhoods or communities. That's bullshit, man. That's, that's absolute nonsense. And look, I'm not on any of these meetings, okay? And I'm not one of these folks who had who was privy to the information, the new information that was given that would make it copacetic for the Big Ten football teams to go ahead and play this year. But my point has always been, ever since the shutdown, it has been, you put the health of the student athletes first. And for these other outside pressures to come in and have a say-so or have an opinion and thought and try to sway the Big Ten And the presidents and the chancellors and the commissioner of the conference to go ahead and reverse that call, I think it shows no guts. I think they have no backbone. I think they have no spine. And I think it was for ulterior motives other than looking out for what's best for the student college athletes of the Big Ten Conferences. Wendell's World in Sports i'm your host wendell wallace so glad that you could be with us so again what made the league change its mind the big 10 presidents and chancellors needed greater assurances from the league's doctors and experts in infectious diseases and sports medicine and ohio state's lead team physician dr Dim borchers jim borchers excuse me who co-chaired the medical subcommittee on the return and competition task force emerged as an influential voice to ease the president's initial concerns. Oh, how about that? So the person who was the loudest voice, the person who was the most instrumental in changing the minds of these presidents so they could play college football this year in the Big Ten happened to be the Ohio State lead physician. Oh, and Ohio State regarded this season as one of the top five teams in the uh, in college football this season. Oh, no, no bias there. Oh, no, no uh, ulterior motives there oh no looking in the best interest of the heart for the kids oh yes of course come on man give me a break sources said ohio state along with nebraska and a few other schools were the most vocal about playing a fall season again the importance for the economy of some of these communities where they're going to be playing football one of the reasons why i think the uh pac 10 has been so quiet and steadfast in saying that look we are going to go ahead and and we're going to not play uh, the fall sports this season when the other sports in the conferences and other conferences are playing, is the fact that, you know, unlike Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and Auburn, Alabama, and Starksville, Mississippi, and Norman, Oklahoma, and Stillwater, Oklahoma, and Clemson, South Carolina, and, you know, all these other places where they're playing in the uh, SEC and the... Uh, ACC and the other conferences that are playing, you know, you're speaking about Manhattan, Kansas, um, Lawrence, Kansas. So you take a look at some of the schools that are located in the big, in the, uh, Pac 12, um, you know, with the exception of Spokane, Washington, where, oh, Pullman? no, Pullman, Spokane is where Gonzaga is. Or oh, Washington State, is it in Pullman? I don't know, but, you know, oh, uh, Eugene, uh, Corvallis is where Oregon State is. But for the most part, you have some of the major teams, if you're speaking about USC, UCLA, Arizona State. I mean, they're in major cities. You're speaking about UCLA where they're having professional sports and they have an economy where they're not reliant upon... The football programs and the college athletic programs of USC and UCLA and Cal State Fullerton and Cal State Long Beach and Cal State North Ridge and San Diego State and San Diego and all those other places on Southern California. So the, the, the need for USC or UCLA football to be played this season because of economic reasons, that's not an issue. Because Los Angeles, the market is not depending upon them. Uh, Tempe, Arizona, which is a suburb of Phoenix, Arizona, is not depending upon Arizona State to be playing for those guys to be able to survive for that. Uh, for that uh, community to be able to survive. So, you know, it's a whole lot different when you're speaking about those type of markets for Pac-12 football and for the Pac-12 conferences compared to what's going down with the Big Ten and some of the other, other conferences who have decided to play football in the fall. The importance of college football in Ann Arbor the importance of college football in Columbus the importance of college football in Happy Valley and where the University of Penn State is these are all you know very important foundations for these communities to exist financially so they're going to try to do everything they can and they did And people can sit there and you can moan and you can whine and you can complain about how everything was rolled out and how everything was put together and how they flip flopped and went back and forth and everything. My point was always dealing with the health risk concern of the student athletes who were playing football. So again, if they weren't going to have their scholarships taken away, what's the big fucking deal? Hey man, life happens. Life ain't fair. This shit happens. So, you know, but they're going to be back to playing football and, you know, I would be a hypocrite and an idiot if I sat there and said, I'm so disgusted by the decision for the Big 12 to be, or excuse me, the Big 10 to be playing football again, and I'm not going to be watching any of the games. Hell yeah, I'm going to be watching the games. And does this make college football uh, better than it was before? Yeah, it is. But I'm still going to feel a little dirty. I'm still going to feel a little guilty watching college football this year, but I'll watch it And I'll enjoy it. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be back. And let's kind of like say what it is, right? One of the main reasons why, again, the Big Ten is playing football, because of Ohio State. I'm quite sure Indiana. I'm quite sure Maryland. I'm quite sure Rutgers. I'm quite sure Illinois. I'm quite sure Northwestern and these other schools really, really ambivalent at the very least in terms of their yearning to play football but if you're speaking about a team like Ohio State ranked in the top five if you're speaking about a team like Penn State who's supposed to be very good this year you're speaking about a team like Michigan who's supposed to be in the top 25 this year especially Ohio State and Penn State who are supposed to be possibly battling for an NCAA championship Then you go ahead, and that's one of the reasons why there's no coincidence that one of the loudest proponents of the Big Ten starting up the season again was Ohio State's head coach, Ryan Day. Then you look in the landscape, you look at the fact that the coronavirus is supposed to be back with a vengeance around the October, November uh, months. You take a look at a school like Michigan State where all of the students were ordered into mandatory quarantine after the school announced 342 new coronavirus cases. You know, the new Big Ten guidelines are talking about, you know, they're going to require athletes and staff members on the field to undergo daily coronavirus testing. Athletes who test positive won't be allowed to play for at least 21 days. That's fine. And look, this is still not written in stone this college football season. Just like the NBA, I mean, hell, man, just like everyday life, man. We're just kind of taking this day by day, week by week. Because, again, as of this moment, yeah, it's great that college football is... Happening. It's great that the NFL is back and the teams are playing, but we have no idea what's going to be coming down the pike in terms of the availability of these leagues and uh, college football to still be happening in four four, five, six, seven, eight weeks. And the one thing with the college football, if one of these players, just one, It doesn't have to be a massive outbreak. We're taking a possibility of a very small, minuscule number of players come down with the coronavirus and they either die or they become grossly ill or they have to fight for their lives just to come out of this. How is college football going to look then? Now, you'll be able to have some states. You'll be able to have some programs. You'll be able to have some schools, depending upon what, part of this country, what state that they're in, that could sit there and challenge the notion of, well, how do you know that this football player contracted the coronavirus playing football? He could have done it anywhere. You know, it's kind of presumptuous to think that just because our starting left guard is in grave condition because he caught the coronavirus, you're going to equate that or you're going to make the connection that he got it while playing football against this team. And what happens, again, if we're going to be following the letter of the law of this coronavirus, if someone from Penn State does get the coronavirus after playing in a game against Indiana, or it's shown on the Monday when they go into testing that he's been tested positive for the coronavirus, even if he's asymptomatic. What did that mean that the entire team, that they would have to go ahead and do an investigation on Penn State's team in terms of who did he come in contact with, the team in terms of who he played? Let's say, for instance, just using a team that Penn State played against Indiana, wouldn't that mean that anybody who, be, who came in close contact with the left guard who played, I don't know, 60 to 65 snaps during that game would have to quarantine themselves also? I mean, isn't that when everything first went down with the coronavirus again? I go back to the fact that the NBA shut down its operations for, a month, for months when Rudy Gobert and then Donovan Mitchell tested positive for the virus. And then they had to go and the Charlotte Hornets had to quarantine and they had to do this and they had to do that. I mean, wouldn't that be the same protocol for college athletics in the NFL and NBA and such? But just sticking now to college football, wouldn't they have to follow those type of uh, measures if a player from a team came down with the coronavirus? And hell, what's happening if it's more? And Orgeron was talking about, hey, most of our players have already got the coronavirus or some nonsense like that. Most of your players on the LSU football team has already come down with the coronavirus? What in the Blue Blazers are you talking about? That wouldn't that be some news? Could you imagine in March if we're speaking about, oh yeah, by the way, guess what? Um the entire <laughs> the entire Indiana Pacers basketball team has coronavirus. Could you imagine? What type of actions would be taking place? Could you imagine what the league would have to do in that situation? So now we're speaking about non-employed minors playing college football or half the um, players in college football being minors. You're talking about them coming down with coronavirus, and you're speaking about that like for them like they caught a boo-boo or they're, they just caught a cold? Man, if someone comes down, are we already mitigating? Are we already um De- uh, de-escalating the impact of what the coronavirus is all about. Someone just caught the coronavirus who plays college football. And it's not just one person. It's spreading. Shouldn't there be a little bit more of an alarm than what's going on? Shouldn't we be a little bit more concerned about what's going on when we have college football players being tested and being positive for the Coronavirus? Shouldn't we be just a little bit more, hey, this is serious, other than, you know what, we'll go ahead and quarantine you for 14 days, and then after that, we'll go ahead and we'll put you right back on the field. Say what? So, I don't know. Again, <clears throat> I'm selfish. I'm a human being, and I'm especially, an I'm American. So, I'm selfish, I'm self-centered, and everything is all about me. So it's like, hey, if you're going to be putting a product on the field that's going to be entertaining me for three, three and a half hours on a Saturday or if you're speaking about my normal routine of watching college football, you're speaking about me turning on the first game around 9 a.m. and not turning off the last game until, I don't know, late in the evening, depending upon if there's a UFC card I want to watch or or anything else. But my days during the fall, Saturdays and Sundays, are surrounded are focused on football so you know if these guys want to go ahead and do that i i I appreciate that but i don't know man i don't know but college football and the big 10 is back i guess you could say for better for worse hip hip hooray go osu happy valley Hail to the Victor Valiant, hail to the da, da 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 hail, hail to Michigan. Oh, what happened? What happened? The quarterback just came down with the coronavirus. Fuck it, Quarantine him for 14 days and keep moving. Hail to the Victor Valiant, hail. Okay, so it's gonna be one of those type of deals. So, uh, yeah, man, that's what it's all about. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us as I'm recording this on a Wednesday night. I have in the background watching AEW. Um, My man, Jim Ross, Tony Schiavone, looking to see what Le Champion is going to do tonight. Um, Yeah, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting. For once, I don't have on a 1982 Basketball game or a nineteen sixty four NFL game. I actually have on something to where, uh, you know, it's like recent. How about that? I'm learning. I'm growing. It's wonderful. Wendell's world in sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. It's interesting because I'm a, I was a huge WWE fan, but man, ever since the quarantine happened and they're not doing it from in front of uh, any of the fans, I, I really can't get into the WWE right now. I just can't. I understand what Drew McIntyre is doing. I'm glad that uh, they made him the. The main man over on Raw. I'm finally glad that they got Roman Reigns to turn heel. The reason why he turned heel was a plausible explanation. He's with Paul Heyman. Glad to see him now just uh, just being in the role of actor and not writer. Um, glad to see Alexa Bliss is going to the dark side. I'm glad to see Randy Orton in his turn with the, with the head kicks. I'm glad that they got Ric Flair out of there finally. Uh, I'm glad that Sasha Banks and Bailey are going to be feuding. I'm glad to see that Sasha Banks is making that turn back to being a face. I'm glad that they're keeping Bailey as a heel. I know Vince was talking about uh, how, how happy he's been with the work of Bailey in her heel role. I have no idea what's going with Mandy Rose. I have no idea what's happening. Oh, I like to hurt. I like the hurt business. MVP, Bobby Lashley, Cedric Alexander, um, Shelton Benjamin, Shelton Benjamin is probably going to go down, as far as a worker is concerned, as one of the more underrated workers in WWE, WWF history. When that guy was younger, I still remember the... Match he had with Shawn Michaels on Monday Night Raw, man, that was one of the best wrestling matches I've ever seen. That that guy was something else, but he had no charisma, he had no mic skills, but boy, he was uh, he was he was a fantastic, absolutely fantastic worker. So, really, haven't been watching too much of what's going on in WWE, but I have been paying attention a little bit more to uh, AEW, and uh, didn't watch the didn't watch the um, didn't watch the Pay-per-view, but I heard that was a train wreck and a half. Sammy Gravata and uh, Matt Hardy. Jeez, oh, we. So, that's what I'm watching. A little AEW as I'm recording this podcast. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So, speaking about the NFL and college football is being back. Thursday night games started the season for the NFL. The Kansas City defending champions started off their season with a solid victory, professional victory over the Houston, Texas, 34 to 20. Patrick Mahomes was solid, but not spectacular. 24 or 32, 211 yards, three touchdown pa- uh, passes. Clyde Edwards Hilaire finished his NFL debut with 25 rushes for 138 yards and a touchdown. Good, solid performance by the Kansas City defending champions. Uh, They did well. Deshaun Watson was just all right for the Houston Texans. They went 20 for 32 for 253 yards, one touchdown and one interception. The loss of DeAndre Hopkins for the Texans was noticeable. And he had a a big game. He had a very nice game against the defending NFC champion, San Francisco 49ers, for his new team, the Arizona Cardinals, which gave him a fat, huge contract. Good for DeAndre. But uh, the loss was noticeable for the Texans. Will Fuller was all right. He caught eight passes for 112 yards. He's going to assume the role at the number one receiver for the Texans. But Brandon Cooks and Randall Cobb, the two acquisitions, the two of them were going to try to come close to equating to production that DeAndre Hopkins produced while he was with the Texans and being paired with Deshaun Watson, the wide receiver, wide receiver quarterback position. Well, Cooks and Cobb, Cookin and Cobbin, they combined for four catches, 43 yards in their uh, Texas debut, which is surprising because, as I mentioned before, Randall Cobb was coming off the best season that he had in four or five seasons last year with the Dallas uh, Cowboys. And for him to only be catching the minuscule amount of passes that he did, have to get better. Have to get better. But it's a long season. The first couple of, I don't know, man. I'm going to just, I always take the first four to six weeks of the nfl season just to be a fan just to sit back and enjoy you know notice some trends maybe you know take some notes side notes for everything but i don't start talking about who's going to be doing what who's good who's horrible who's going to be making the playoffs who's a super bowl contender who's a fraud who's the real deal i don't really do all that stuff in football in the nfl you can't do that on a week-to-week basis you just can't because there's just been too many it's a, that's what football is all about in the NFL from week to week to week to week to week you can check it out man Every team that has won the Super Bowl during the regular season has gone through a stretch of time where they were at the precipice of like, are we going to make the playoffs? Are we good enough to be a playoff team? Are we really good enough to live up to our expectations? Every team that has won the Super Bowl has had that one game where they looked absolutely horrible, where they looked absolutely terrible, whether it was the opening game of the season, whether it was week eight, even if it was week 12, 13, or 14 every team that has competed for an NFL championship has had a game or two during the regular season where they flat out stunk. So whoever is going to win the Super Bowl this year, with maybe the possible exception in history going back of the uh, 2009 New England Patriots who finished the regular season undefeated, for the most part, everybody has had a game during the regular season where they've absolutely stunk. So for me... I'm not going to go ahead. I'm not going to bury the Houston Texans. I'm not going to bury yet Bill O'Brien. I still think the move to trade Hopkins was ridiculous. I still think it was wrong. I still think it was a fireable offense, but to all of a sudden label it a bust after week one, not going there just yet. Not going to be going there just yet. Wendell's World of Sports I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. I thought the Texas defense kind of slowed down in the second half. I thought the methodical Kansas City defending champions showed a lot in terms of, hey, wait a minute, you know, we don't have to be spectacular all the time. We can go ahead and we can, you know, put on a 7 out of 10 performance and I still get the job done over a pretty good team with a pretty good defense. So we'll see moving forward. The show for racial and social injustice um that the teams the NFL teams this weekend displayed I thought were were fine thought they were good I thought their hearts were in the right place of course whenever that happens you have to sit there and listen to the idiots and the fans you sit there and talk about well uh, I'm done I'm not going to be watching the NFL anymore I'm not going to be watching sports anymore I'm not going to be watching the NBA anymore I don't want politics in my sports you know that type of stupidity I want that I don't I don't want to be, you know, being told what to do. These guys are millionaire athletes. These guys are pampered athletes. What do these guys know about struggle? What do these guys know about what's going on in the world today? Because these guys are making millions upon millions of dollars. And the only reason why they got to the point of the financial uh, status that they are on right now is because they can run a 4 two forty and bench 500 pounds and catch a football, throw a football and tackle a human being. So what their thoughts and opinions are about racial injustice and who's doing what as far as politics are concerned are really no concern or something that I put no value in because after all, they didn't graduate from college or after all, all these guys can do is play football. You know, the same type of ignorant, racist, bigoted stupidity that these people like to say. And when I say racist and ignorance, most of the time they're talking about the black players because after all, the black players are the ones who are doing the most protesting, or the ones who are more outward in their protesting, and if you take a look at the background of of these players, that they come from, when you're speaking about the black players, they come from lower economic uh, situations and environments and neighborhoods, so that's where we get the, you know, these guys are nothing more than, you know, the only reason why they got into college is because they can run fast, and they can bench press this, and they can catch this, and do this, that, and the other, based on their athletic abilities, you know, so, that's, uh, that's the argument that these morons have in terms of, well, I'm not going to be watching football anymore. So my deal, and I said this on my YouTube channel when I did my short little podcast about what I'm talking about right now, my, my situation was this. When people want to bring up the, look, I'm not here to be told what to do. I'm not here for any political nonsense. All I want to do is be entertained. All I want to do is to be able to watch teams play football, baseball, basketball, hockey, whatever the uh, sport that they're looking to watch. So my thoughts and opinions about that is this. Okay, if that's the opinion that you're going to have, if that's the uh, thought process that you're going to have, fine, fine. So do this. For all the jackasses, for all the idiots who are out there um, applauding or agreeing with the folks during the Kansas City Houston opening game in the NFL season, when they locked arm in arms in unity and just wanted a moment of silence to take a moment of silence for you know equality and harmony, harmonious interactions and all those type of things, and you fucking assholes booed. And for the people who agreed with them, and it had nothing to do, according to you guys, it had nothing to do because of race, it had nothing to do with that. It's just once again, I want to be entertained, I don't want politics in my sports. All I want is sports, 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 while I turn on to watch of my favorite sports league. Okay, fine. Well, then you know what? I want you same motherfuckers to be booing and cheering and going on Twitter and talking about boycotting and I'm never watching NFL or NBA or a Major League Baseball game again or hockey game again. I want you motherfuckers with the same firm and the same passion and the same enthusiasm that I'm doing right now in defending these people's rights to go ahead and uh, do what they do in terms of expressing their First Amendment rights to silently, nonviolently do a, a little protest. I want you same motherfuckers to be booing and to be cheering and to be downgrading and all of those type of things when we go ahead and we recognize the military. Or when we recognize what happened on 9-11. Or when we recognize the firefighters or the police officers or, or the essential workers or anything like that. I want you same motherfuckers out there who were booing when the Texans and the Kansas City football team locked arms and arms in a show of unity to try to make this world, to try to make this country, to try to make your existence in the society that we live in a better place. For you who found that so offensive, for you who found that so callous, and for you who found that found that so unnecessary because you just turned in to watch a football game, do the same fucking thing when, for instance, a politician, they show a politician, or a politician comes in, and, you know, the president's before the first pitch, they throw a pitch out at the opening uh, day of the baseball season. I want you same motherfuckers out there booing and putting down that and saying that's no good and that's bullshit and that's nonsense. Because it's the same goddamn thing. I want you same motherfuckers out there to be booing the Yankees when they wore the um, police, where they had the police and firemen's uh, you know, the New York Fire Department and the Police Department, you know, on their on their hats. Some of the uh, players for the Yankees. I want you you, got to be sitting up there talking about, that's it, I'm trading in my Yankee season tickets. I'm never watching a Yankee game again because you see that? They're up there with their firefighter hats on and they're, you know, NYPD and all this kind of nonsense. I don't want to be hearing any of that. I don't want to be having any of that type of nonsense. I'm only here for sports, 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 sports. So it's the same type of shit when we talk about, you know, why aren't you people jeering and getting angry and booing during the national anthem? I mean, goddamn, that's the most political thing you can talk about, right? I don't see any of you motherfuckers up there booing and jeering and losing your mind over that. So, I mean, Deshaun Watson said the moment of silence with the Kansas City football team was about developing what was uh, about, you know, a message of equality you know those who are cloaked in privilege they don't want to hear that so but i keep keep doing what you're doing fellas fuck them but those who want to sit there and talk about go on twitter and social media and talk about when well, i'm done with the nfl and all this kind of stuff fuck them good bye see ya we're not doing this for you we're doing this for your children we're doing it for your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. Because in this area, when they become adults or when they become your age, as far as equality and, harm, and, uh, and, uh, and love and togetherness in our society, will be miles ahead of where you were when they reach the same age that you are. Hopefully um, down the line in 15, 20, 25 years. Wendell's World in Sports I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things going on. Oh, So, getting now back to the NFL season, man. As I mentioned before, regardless of what happens, the first four months, first four games of the season, first month, first four games of the season, not making any definitive statements on how good or bad a team is. Yeah, I know Philadelphia stunk. Yeah, I know Cleveland was terrible. Yeah, I know Indianapolis lost to uh, Jacksonville. And then I, lo- I know those teams look bad doing it, but I'm not making any type of, oh, they stink, all oh, the same old Browns, all oh, they need to get rid of Carson Wentz, all, oh, you know, Indy, the most overrated team in the league this season, I'm not going there, I'm not going there, Cleveland looked disjointed. Cleveland looked dysfunctional. Cleveland looked terrible in the 38-6 loss to the Baltimore Ravens. Not going to lie to you. Philadelphia losing to one of the perceived worst teams in the NFL in the Washington Snyder skins after going up 17-0 and Carson Wentz throwing some crucial, crucial interceptions. And the fact that the Eagles offensive line was depleted because of injuries, not only before the game, but during the game caused Washington to... uh did have a field day on Carson Wentz when he was sacked eight times. I understand all those things look bad, and I understand right now that Carson Wentz doesn't look too good, but Carson Wentz is still Carson Wentz. And I think when everything is said and done, the Philadelphia Eagles are going to be just fine. They may not, but my guesstimation is they're going to be just fine. The Cleveland Browns, the same thing, man. They've just got too much talent, and still, it's too much talent of a it's too early in the season for me to say baker mayfield yay or nay yet and look tomorrow as i'm recording this i'll publish this on thursday or later on tonight so when people will be hearing this it'll probably be on thursday the possibility you know that the cleveland browns are going to be playing the cincinnati Bengals on thursday baker mayfield could come out and have a strong game then what are you going to say then we're going to go back to the hey baker mayfield this that and the other positive 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 so You know, we'll see Indianapolis. And again, we have to also take into account the fact that these teams didn't have any preseason games to get themselves ready, especially if you're speaking about some of these teams with new offensive coordinators, some of these teams with new head coaches, some of these teams with new quarterbacks, especially in Indy, when you're speaking about Phillip Rivers, who knows, man, we don't know what's going to be happening with those teams. So Philadelphia, Cleveland, Indianapolis. Yeah, they look bad. Yeah, I can see the fan base going nuts. Yeah, already the fan base is talking about Carson Wentz sucks and he's no good. And yeah, Baker Mayfield's overrated and he's busted as the number one pick. And I told you, Philip Rivers is done. He's no good. Yeah, all of those things based on one week, you could make that argument or you can put that in your headlines. But for me, that's not going to be the definitive, not yet, at least. I'm not going to be writing anything, uh, putting anything in stone based on one performance the first week of the season. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. And on the other end of the spectrum, as I talked about Cleveland and Philadelphia and Indianapolis being horrible, and I'm not gonna be dancing in the street like a Martha and the Vandellas about the Washington Snyder skins. I'm not gonna be doing that about the Jacksonville uh, Jaguars. Gardner Minshew, as well as he looked, as well as he played, he ain't going to be that type of Gardner Minshew the majority of the season. I still don't think he's going to be that guy that's going to be leading Jacksonville to the playoffs. Just like I don't think Dwayne Haskins, who started this game against Philadelphia 3 for 12, I don't think that he's going to be the guy that's going to lead the uh, Washington football team to the playoffs. If Washington can get four or five wins out of this team this season or if Washington can get four more wins this season in the last 15 games, I think that's uh, more uh, to the expectations, realistic expectations that this team has. I do love the fact, being a Washington Snyder Skin fan, that uh, they have a building block in terms of the defensive line. Montres Sweat and Chase Young look great and Jonathan Allen. All of these first-round draft picks to go along with Ryan Kerrigan, who's been a steady, solid performer for that football team for years upon years upon years. They have, they have something to work with. And as the San Francisco 49ers showed you last season, that you can go a long way with a really strong defensive front four. So with Jack Del Rio as the head coach in terms of the, excuse me, as as, as the uh, defensive coordinator, and I guess sometimes depending upon what's going on with Ron, Ron Rivera, Del Rio can move in and be the head coach of the team. And of course, Rivera having a defensive background and some of the defenses that he put out when he was the coach of the Carolina Panthers. I mean, there's some building blocks there for Washington. Definitely some building blocks. I would love this team really to uh, go one of fifteen and have them draft Trevor Lawrence. And I was thinking to myself, I actually tweeted this. It was like, and this is when the uh, Washington team was down seventeen to nothing, and they looked like same old Snyder skins. And I was thinking to myself, man, could you imagine if Washington had the worst record in the league and they had the ability to go ahead and draft Trevor Lawrence? That would be one of the worst things that could happen for this league, because we've seen what happens when a generational talented quarterback goes to a really bad football team or we've seen what happens when a quarterback that's supposed to be the next that's supposed to be the, the next it guy for the NFL is placed in a bad organization. Go see Andrew Luck in the Indianapolis Colts. So you sit there and you think to yourself, damn, man, yeah, I'm quite sure of me being a fan of this team. I would love to see Washington. First, I would love to see Washington get Trevor Lawrence and then somehow, some way, have Daniel Snyder get caught up and sell the team. Maybe the folks of D.C. can go ahead and do Daniel Snyder like they did Mary and Barry. I mean, set up Daniel Snyder in a hotel room with some coke and a hooker and maybe videotape it, and maybe that'll be the straw that breaks the camel's back in terms of Snyder owning the football team. But I would love to see under new ownership because I have no faith in Daniel Snyder, the owner of a football team, moving forward in creating a team that could compete for championships. But I would just love to see that quarterback of a Trevor Lawrence come to our team. But then again, if you're the NFL, you really want that risk? With that franchise, that could be quite detrimental. And we're speaking about, you know, a guy in Trevor Lawrence who is, who has the ability, who has the talent to be that guy, to be that next generation guy. So you would want that quarterback to go to a team that at least has some type of clue to go to an organization that has some type of clue of what they're doing. (sighs) Washington definitely ain't that squad. Jacksonville, the jury is still out. Cleveland, we all know about that nonsense. So, you know, it'll it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting moving forward. But yeah, man, week one, watching as a fan. Week one, watching in terms of just enjoyment. I'll worry about who's doing what, who's going to be winning the Super Bowl, who's going to be winning the division, who are the favorites. I'll worry about that when the calendar reaches... Late November, early December, middle of December. As of right now, I'm just going to sit back, relax, and enjoy some NFL football. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us Wednesday night, speaking about what's going down in the world of sports. Man, I'm going to try to put out another podcast in a couple of days. This NBA playoffs have been fantastic. Uh, ooh, Brandy Rhodes, well, that's a good looking woman. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm going to try to put out uh, something in terms of um, another podcast in the next couple of days talking about what's going to be happening in the NFL and the NBA playoffs and all those type of things. So the Tampa Bay Buccaneers started against the New Orleans States Saints 34-23 loss. Is it that the Tampa Bay Tampa Brady Buccaneers, shall we say, started off rough against the New Orleans Saints. Brady was 23 of 36 for 239 yards, two passing touchdowns, a quarterback sneak for a TD, three quarterback uh he was sacked three times. Two vintage Jameis Winston type interceptions. As I mentioned before on my YouTube channel while I was discussing Brady and the interceptions, it was almost like Jameis Winston, who's now the third string quarterback for the New Orleans Saints, had run into the back, put on some white face, put on blue contact put some blonde hair on himself and then put on a Tampa Bay Buccaneer jersey and number 12 and ran out, got in a hovel for the uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers and said, let me go Jameis Winston on you and threw two interceptions that were reminiscent of what he did last year, multiple times, numerous times for the uh, Tampa bomb, Tampa Brady Buccaneers. First interception was intercepted by Marshawn Lattimore was intended for Mike Evans. Brady thought Evans should have kept going, should have kept going deep. Evans thought the Saints coverage called for him to stop. And uh, basically what head coach Bruce Arians said about the play was it, was it was a miscommunication on Tom Brady. Mike read it right. Tom overthrew it. And then the second interception, Brady telegraphed the pass that Janoris Jenkins jumped the route, intercepted the ball, took it back 36 yards to be his house for another touchdown, and what Arians said about that interception was basically, bad decision, so, you know, hey, people are talking about, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, this, that, and the other, Belichick with motherfuck Tom Brady, this, that, and the other, but he did it in private, he didn't go out there and embarrass them well, I mean, I don't know if Bruce Arians embarrassed him, I mean, basically, I mean, we all saw what happened, the second pass that was intercepted by Jenkins, the pass that, uh, Brady threw. It was horrible. It was terrible. I don't don't think we need to be a football savant to notice that. So he basically said it was a bad decision. He didn't make any notion about Brady stinking it up or he's lost it or anything like this. Now, later on in the week, he was talking about, hey, you know, when in practice, Tom is doing this. He's looking great. He's looking wonderful. In the game on Sunday, though. I have no idea what happened. That might be a little yeah, but still man, Brady's been around for 20 years. He's 43 years old. He's a big boy now. He's got a couple of kids. He's got a wife. He's making bank. His legacy is set. A little criticism is not going to I think, you know, have Tom Brady say, "Say motherfucker, do you know who the fuck I am?" So, you know, I'm not I'm not worried about that. But really, here's the important note to make after this game for all you guys and gals out there. Tom Brady has never won a football game without Bill Belichick. Oh, shit. He's now 0-1. Oh, my goodness. I only say this. Of course, I say it in jest, but this is going to be the every week discussion. Every week is going to be a confirmation to the argument who was more responsible for the New England Patriots dynasty becoming a dynasty. Was it Brady? Was it Belichick? Of course, the answer is both, but now we're going to, you know, bring it out to another level and say, who was more important? Yes, I know that both of those guys were important, just like Robert Kraft was important, just like the other players were important. But when speaking about the two stars of the football team, the two main focal points of the football team, Belichick going down as one of the greatest, if not the greatest football coach who's ever uh, coached, and we're talking about Tom Brady, one of the greatest, Football players and one of the greatest quarterbacks who's ever played, if not the greatest. When you have those type of platitudes, when you have that type of resume, then you have the type of dynasty that the New England Patriots had. Well, then it's only, you know, I guess it's only natural to go ahead and start talking about, well, who's better, who was more important. Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are going to be fine As the season goes on, if the season goes uninterrupted for 16 weeks, it sticks to the regular, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are going to be fine. Again, I am not reading into one bad performance. There's no shame in losing your first football game against one of the favorites to win the Super Bowl and the New Orleans Saints on the road. They didn't have any preseason games. So this is what happens to Tom Brady. This is what happens to the organization. This is what happens when you go out and you make these moves. This is what happens when there's a change of scenery for your Hall of Fame future great quarterback, compete with a new head coach, new offensive weapons, new system, new location, new environment, lack of preseason due to the pandemic. This is all a situation that Tom is getting used to, especially when you're speaking about a guy who was so into the routine of being with one organization for 20 years and not just one organization one philosophy one way of life i mean this isn't a situation where take for instance you know tom brady was with the new england patriots 18 19 years but they went through three coaches and four offensive coordinators and five different systems and everything like this yes for the most part Tom Brady, Bill Belichick, the whole time. As far as offensive coordinators go, you had Charlie Weiss, and then you had Bill O'Brien, and then you had uh, Josh McDaniels for the lion's share of Brady's time there with the uh, Buccaneers. I mean, excuse me, with the New England Patriots. But for the most part, he's learning a whole new system, and not just again the things that he has to get used to on the football field, but also some of the things that he has to get used to off the football field. If you think about it, a routine for 20 years, especially as, you know, rigid and strict as Tom Brady is in his routine to become the best football player that he can be. Now we're talking about a new location. Now we're talking about a new routine. Now you're talking about everything in terms of getting his life together. And now we're talking about a situation where it's gonna be different with his kids, it's gonna be different with his wife and the way that he interacts and the way that he gets to see him and the way that, uh, you know, that, that deal is all about for the first time, for the first time him being a father, for the first time of him being a husband to Giselle. I mean, this is gonna be all different from him and it's gonna be an adjustment period for him. And that's, again, not taking into account Everything that he has to learn with new teammates, new style, new offense, new coach, new this, new that, new locker room, new players, and and those type of things. So you know this is something where you know Brady is good enough. He's not 2009 Tom Brady. He's not 2015 Tom Brady. He's not 2017 Tom Brady. But he's still Tom Brady, a guy who can win you 10, 11 football games. He's still a guy in Tom Brady who for two to three weeks during the season is going to remind you how great he is. He's going to be able to turn back the clock, if not to 2009, at least back to 2013-14. He's going to have two or three games this season where he's going to throw for 350 yards, four touchdowns, no interceptions, and complete 30 or 38 passes. That's what Tom Brady's going to do this season. But on the other end of the stri- of the spectrum, he's also going to have three or four games where he's going to be, well, looking like this. Looking old. Looking not anything like the Tom Brady that we've come to know and love. So, that's the deal, man. That's what happens. This is not even... But as I mentioned before, Brady's going to be fine. This is not even the worst opening day performance of his career, if you think about it. The Patriots were blown out when he was the uh, starting quarterback back in 2003, the opening day of the uh, season that year, 31 nothing to the Buffalo Bills. And as I mentioned before, the Patriots mainly came out and played like a petulant child who was pouting because he had been grounded by the parents. The New England Patriots were upset. The players were upset because... Lawyer Malloy was traded to the, was, 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 I think traded or cut that day. And Lawyer Malloy was one of the guys who was really respected and really beloved in that Patriot locker room. So they were pretty upset about that. Then you went ahead and, you know, the starting quarterback for the Buffalo Bills was Drew Bledsoe. And at that time, it was the first year that Bledsoe had been traded. So, you know, you're talking about New England's favorite son going somewhere else, and while they love Tom Brady because of what they did in coming off the bench to lead him to a Super Bowl, this was still a situation back in 2003 where Drew Brees was more beloved at the time than Tom Brady because of everything that he did, especially coming in his rookie season when New England was 1-15 with... Uh, with uh, uh, Bill Parcells as the head coach, and he was one of the important building blocks to where the Patriots got to where they were able to win that Super Bowl over the St. Louis Rams. So it wasn't a situation where, you know, playing at Buffalo, you know, everybody was like, Tom, Tom, he's our man in New England in the Bostonian area. They were still in love, and they still had great regard for Drew Bledsoe. So that was a shit show, and that was uh, a debacle from the get-go, so there's been plenty of games in Tom Brady's career where he didn't look good at all so, you know, I'm not putting too much stock, yeah, again, he's 43 years old, but I said physically, he's going to he's going to decline, no doubt about it but uh, mentally, in terms of playing the game of football, he's fine, oh, and by the way, the 2003 season, where they lost 31 to nothing, opening day, the Buffalo New England went on the to win the Super Bowl. Now, I'm not saying that Tampa Bay is going to do the same thing, but what I'm saying is I'm not going to sit there and talk about, oh, my goodness gracious, you know, what's wrong with Tom Brady? Is Tom Brady washed up? What are we going to do? Did Tampa Bay make a mistake? Blah, 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 blah. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So speaking about Tampa Bay as a team, they play Carolina next Sunday. Um, You know, you take a look at the schedule. And you take a look at who they play. They've got Carolina next week, then they're at Denver, then the Chargers at home, then there are a Thursday night game against the Chicago Bears on the road, then it's Green Bay, and then the Las Vegas Raiders. So if you take a look at that schedule, if they come out of that five and three, six and two, they'll be fine. No one's going to be yelling and screaming and hollering and of the games that they play coming up next, Carolina, Denver, the Chargers, Chicago, Green Bay the Las Vegas Raiders, those six games, if Brady is solid to very good in four of those games, which I think he has a great chance to be against, say, for instance, Carolina, the Chargers, uh, the the Raiders, the Bears, everything will be fine. Everything will be fine. Then people will be talking about, oh, Tom Brady, Tom Brady, he's our man. If he can't do it, well, then James Winston, Winston sure couldn't. So those are the things. I, I have more faith and Tom Brady, in a 43-year-old Tom Brady turning it around and having a positive impact on the success of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I have more faith in him than I do in any other transaction that the Buccaneers, player transactions that the Buccaneers made. I'm less bullish on what Rob Gronkowski can bring to the squad against the Saints on Sunday. I mean, he was basically a non-factor he was targeted three times at two receptions for 11 yards i think oj howard as i mentioned who caught a brady touchdown pass he's going to be a bigger target for brady as the season goes along i think he's going to be a more reliable target for tom brady over gronkowski as the season moves along leonard Fournette carried the ball only five times for five yards i don't ever see ronald jones ran well he ran hard for Tampa Bay. He's younger, less mileage. I think that uh, he's a little bit more versatile than Furnett. So, I don't think there's I don't think that Furnett is going to become the starting running back. And if he does become the starting running back, I don't think that he's going to be the guy that's going to really impact the Tampa Bay Buccaneers offensively in a positive way. So, if everything is all said and done, Mike Evans, the wide receiver's got to get healthy. Chris Godwin suffered a concussion against the Saints. We don't know what his availability is for the game on Sunday against Carolina, but I think when everything is all said and done, the offensive line was a little shaky. Defensive uh, players made some mistakes, made some big-time mistakes. The offsides on fourth down and two gave the Saints the ability to move the ball down the field more, and I think uh, they scored consequently. So, all of these things, again, they didn't have any preseason games. The OTAs, I think they said because of everything that went down with the pandemic and everything was so squirrely in other place that uh, the Buccaneers missed 500 rep opportunities in terms of preseason, in terms of OTAs, in terms of training camp. So you're speaking about the ability, 500 reps that they missed because of that. I mean, that's, that's, that's got to, uh, you know, be a detriment again, going on a road and playing the team in new Orleans that are that's one of the favorites to win the Super Bowl. And I, I thought I thought um, New Orleans played an average game. I thought Drew Brees looked average average myself. So, you know, I'm not taking too much out of that. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Dallas loses their opening game of the season against the LA Rams in their new stadium, 20-17. As I mentioned before on my YouTube channel, talking about this game, to me, it looked like two good teams. Good teams, eight and eight teams, two nine and seven teams, possibly two ten and six teams playing against each other. Um, it was an excellent offensive game plan by Sean McVay. The team ran the ball 40 times, 453 yards. They passed 31 times for 269 net yards. Ran the ball over 35 minutes and covered, converted 10 of 18 third and fourth down um, plays. So, you know, Jared Goff. Was good, 20-31, 275 yards. He was efficient. The one interception he had was a blatant blow-to-the-head call that should have been called by the referee that wasn't. But uh, Jared Goff was was efficient. He was a little bit better than a game manager. He was a B-plus version of Alex Smith when Alex Smith was doing a thing for the uh, Kansas City football team. So I, I thought it was good. Dak Prescott, on the other hand, for Dallas, he didn't answer any questions about whether he should be play- paid like an elite quarterback. Again, it's only one week, but let's take a look. If I had to sit there and judge, give my thoughts and opinions about Dak Prescott and the game that he played on Sunday, Sunday night, he was good. He was he was solid. He was solid. No, he was efficient. He was he wasn't the main reason why they lost the game. All right, I mean he was he was good. He was good, you know, he was, he was a solid B minus C plus, 25 of 39, 266 yards, no touchdown. The offense managed three points on the first six drives in the second half. Dallas only had 15 net yards on the final 10 plays of the game. So he was, he was good. He wasn't horrible. He wasn't Mayfield on Sunday night. He didn't turn in that type of performance that Mayfield did against the Baltimore Ravens. He wasn't Carson Wentz in the performance he gave against the Washington Snyder Skins. He wasn't that, but he wasn't Aaron Rodgers either. He wasn't Patrick Mahomes either. He was He was good. But see, being good, which I think if you can... Take the majority or take a look at the games that Dak Prescott has been in over the last couple of seasons as the starting quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys and the impact that he had on the game. I think that's what you come down to. He's good. He's solid. He's a professional starting quarterback. That does not equate to someone earning a contract around 35 to $40 million on an average of four or five years. It just doesn't. It's it, it just he's rolling the dice. But then again, with Dallas, they're rolling the dice. It's just, I don't know, man. But then again, we take a look and we say, yeah, Prescott, average, good, this, that, and the other. But the difference between him being good, average, yeah, really didn't do anything for me. The difference between that and them and, you know, people talking about, you know, clutch came through, overcame just being average to go ahead and pull the... You know, pull from the jaws of defeat victory. One bad offensive pass interference call. That's it. It's a possible difference between Prescott is clutch. He's persistent, worthy of franchise quarterback money. He should be the Dallas franchise quarterback after the season. And, well, you know, we don't know. And the questions that are going to be asked upon him. And we're going to be doing this week after week after week after week after week. Does Prescott deserve to be paid like a franchise quarterback? Does does Dak Prescott deserve to be paid the highest paid uh, football player in the game? This is going to be a situation where they're going to be talking about this. They're going to be trying to give you these absolutes on these sports talk shows and what's happening in Dallas and in the barbershops. When you're speaking about the Cowboys and the situation, it's going to be a situation like that the entire time. For one week at least against the Rams, Prescott didn't deserve to be paid like a franchise quarterback. And Dallas won't reach expectations with him at quarterback going forward if he plays like he did on Sunday night against the Los Angeles Rams. Everybody in that game for Dallas was good. They were, they were fine. Zeke ran well. Elliott ran, 96, ran, ran for 96 yards and 22 carries. Amari Cooper, he was fine. He was good. He wasn't horrible. He wasn't terrible. He caught 10 passes for 81 yards. C.D. Lamb. His first game as a professional, caught five passes for 59 yards. Alden Smith had a really good game. in his first game back after a long, long period of him not even you know, knowing if he's going to play football again, not even know if he's going to get his life in order again. The fact that he had 11 tackles, a sack, two quarterback hits. Darian Thompson, the safety, made nine solo tackles. There was nothing that stood out for the Dallas Cowboys that made you say, oh man, this team is not going to do very well. This team isn't going to live up the expectations. But there was nothing from the Dallas Cowboys that made you say, wow, this is one of the elite teams in the NFL. But then again, with the exception of maybe the Green Bay Packers, with the exception of maybe the Seattle Seahawks, well, not maybe, definitely the Seattle Seahawks, they were very impressive in their win against the Atlanta Falcons. Was there anybody else playing football on Sunday that you said looked great? looked awesome, looked ready in terms of, oh yeah, those guys are contenders. The Saints were average. The Buccaneers were below average. The Philadelphia Eagles were way below average. The Green Bay Packers, they were good. The Kansas City football team on Thursday, they were good. They were solidly good. Uh, the Tennessee Titans on Monday night, okay, they were fine. The Pittsburgh Steelers on Monday night, okay, they were, they were pretty good. They were good. But very few teams stood out. But then again, I'm. This is we I keep saying this is week one. This is week one. Let me know what these teams are looking like. Week thirteen, week fourteen, and I and I know because the NFL these teams play only once a week that you know we can't go ahead and start. You know, it, it's it's not prudent to go ahead and start. You know, saying I'm going to wait three and a half, four months before I finally make my decision. But you know, it's it's kind of like the draft. You know, when you draft anything. In terms of players in the NFL or NBA. And you're speaking about. Well did they win the draft? Well did they get a good draft pick? How the fuck do I know on draft night? How do you know how well a team did drafting wise. After it's first year. Who knows? We don't know. Similar to the NFL season after week one. Well you know who did this and who did what. And what team is great. What team is horrible. What team made the right decision. And what team drafted the right player. What free agent looks awesome. What free agent looks like a bust. What what, uh, rookie is going to be you know, leading the chart for rookie of the year. What quarterback is going to be in the MVP discussion? What quarterback looks like an MVP? Baltimore looks solid. Seattle looks solid, but I don't know. I have no idea. But moving this all the way back to Dallas and their performance, there was nothing that came out of that game from the quarterback position, the narrative that Deck Prescott is uh, quarterback, elite quarterback, not worthy of the money, worthy of the money, the Dallas Cowboys, overrated, underrated, NFC champs, NFC East champs only, who knows? Who knows? I, I can't make any type of play. I don't have any type of thoughts and opinions based on that because the sample size, especially when you're speaking about a new head coach and Mike McCarthy bringing in a whole new culture, I, I can't make any definitive Thoughts and comments about moving forward with the uh, Dallas Cowboys. Dallas, who do they play next week? Dallas plays, who do they play? Looking, looking, looking. Oh, they play at Seattle. Oh, They, they play the home opener against Atlanta, who got the doors blown off uh, against the Seattle Seahawks. So we're sitting up here, Dak this, Dak that, find this, that, and the other. What happens if Prescott goes out and throws five touchdown passes and looks awesome? All of a sudden, is the meter going to swing back to, give him the money, give him the money, give him the money. And then the week after that, they play Seattle, and Jamal intercepts Prescott three times, and we're going to have the meter go back to, he sucks, he sucks, he sucks. I mean, you know, plays Cleveland, he plays great. Oh, he's awesome, he's wonderful, he's fantastic. They play at Washington, and he gets sacked six times. He sucks, he sucks, he sucks. So it's like, you know, I don't don't get into too many of that stuff. Mentioned before, they play the Atlanta Falcons at Cowboy Stadium next week. Then they play at Seattle. Then Cleveland. Then New York. Then Arizona, all at home. Then they play on the road at Washington and Philadelphia. And then they're back at home to play Pittsburgh. So going into their bye week, they could be 6-3, and 5-4. and four. What are we going to be saying then? Are we going to know anything more then? We'll know something more. But if there's, if there's anything going be that's going to be definitive... I mean, seven and two, six and three, five and four, four and five, three and six. I mean, what do we know? Who do we know? What happens if they beat Seattle and lose to Cleveland? I don't know. I don't know. That's why for me it's week to week to week to week. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Mike McCarthy getting some shit thrown on him already, huh? New head coach being questioned already about his coaching decisions, fans questioning his decision, his decision not to kick a potential game-tying field goal from the opponents from the Rams' 11-yard line with 11.46 to play in the fourth with the team down 20-17. to The Cowboys failed to get the first down when C.D. Lamb caught a Dak Prescott pass short on the, on the crossing route short of the uh, sticks. Rookie mistake, and you run toward, past the first down marker. But, uh, you know, when you got Aaron Donald huffing and puffing and breathing down on you like he was doing, you know, terrorizing the Dallas Cowboys offensive line. You know, Prescott is thinking about getting that ball out of there sooner rather than later. But, you know, again, whose fault with that? Who knows? We don't know. So according to the ESPN stats and information research, the win percentage had the Cowboys made the field goal attempt would have been 47.4%. All right. If they had converted the fourth down, the win percentage would have been 47.2%, which is basically a wash. And also according to the ESPN stats and info, McCarthy never went for it on fourth down when they were down by three in the fourth quarter inside the opponent's opponent's 30-yard line when he was the head coach of the uh, Green Bay Packers. He had six opportunities to do it. Each time he kicked field goals and he made five of them. So we're speaking about 83% of the time uh McCarthy would get some points on the board when he was put in that situation. Hey man, you know, I, I, how how are you going to sit there and um rip the guy? There was 11:46 left to go in the fourth quarter when he made that decision. And that's all, Cowboy fans, I thought you guys were whining and moaning and complaining about how Jason Garrett plays by the numbers and he's so conservative and all he does is run on first down and there's no creativity and he plays everything by the books. Now, all of a sudden, you have something in Mike McCarthy who in game one of the season with 11.46 left to play in the fourth quarter in a one possession game where you know you're going to have multiple opportunities to get the ball and try to score again. With a defense that's good enough for the Rams not to at least score a touchdown to put you in a position to try to win the game, with 11:46 left to play, you're going to sit there and start whining and complaining and moaning about he should have kicked the football, he should have kicked the field goal. Come on, now I, I, I don't, I don't buy that. I don't buy that at all. I like the aggressiveness. I'm a guy who watches football who enjoys that. In terms of hey man, you know, especially in week one, especially with so much season left. You go for it in that situation. And they're speaking about McCarthy spent a year away from the game, spent, away to, you know, spent a year away from coaching and doing all those things. And in his hiatus, in his sabbatical, he was studying the game and the trends and the analytics and everything. So, you know, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. But I have no problem at all with Mike McCarthy going ahead and doing that. Game one of a long season, you're only down by three. There's 11.46 left to play. You show the faith. You show your trust, not just in your offensive uh, team, but also in the defense to say that even if this doesn't work, I know that my defense is going to be able to stop the Rams. They're not going to be scoring any more points. So we'll have another opportunity during the fourth quarter to put ourselves in this position. Oh, and by the way, if you're speaking about Dak Prescott being one of the highest-paid quarterbacks in the game, if you're speaking about him being an elite football player, you go for it. If you're speaking about a game manager, if you're speaking about a rookie quarterback, if you're speaking about Mitchell Trubisky, you go ahead and kick the field goal. But if you want to put Dak Prescott up there with the elites, if Aaron Rodgers with that quarterback, you go for it. If Ben Roethlisberger with that quarterback, you go for it. If Uh, Deshaun Watson, Patrick Mahomes, Lamar Jackson, Russell Wilson was your quarterback, you go for it. If Dak Prescott is going to be part of that group in that situation, in that uh, time and space, you go for it. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So for the Cowboys, injuries moving forward, um, linebacker Leighton Vander Vander Der fractured fractured his collarbone, uh, generally requires surgery, and a four-to-six-week recovery timetable. The injury is not believed to be season-ending. We will see. Um, tight end Blake Jarvin left the game with a knee injury. The team fears that he tore his ACL. No word on that as I'm recording this podcast. And also offensive lineman Cam Irving also left the game with a knee injury sometime in the second quarter. No word on him either. So how about how about Don, Don Terry Poe, po, who became the first Cowboy player to kneel during the National Anthem before the uh, Sunday night football kickoff against the uh, L.A. Rams. Is he still with the team? Is he still around? Has uh, Jerry Jones said anything? I know Jerry Jones was like, I'm proud of him and everything like that. But, you know, good uh, good for Don Terry. Good for Don Terry. So, there you go. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us speaking about what went down in the NFL Week 1. New England over Miami 21-11. to 11. Of course, the news is about Cam Newton, physically, athletically. Cam Newton showed against the Dolphins that he's not the same Cam Newton that he was in 2015, of course, or in 2017, but he's still effective in the offense that he's running right now for New England. He went 15 and 19 for 155 yards. He ran the ball 15 times for 75 yards and two touchdowns. Brady, by comparison, Mm -hmm. Brady, by comparison, he never eclipsed 41 yards rushing in any of his 285 games for the franchise. Yeah, take that, you fucking asshole. Just joking. But as Team New England rushed 42 times for 217 yards, both of those were the most in a season opener under Belichick. And um, moving forward, this is basically going to be the strength them to win football games. Uh, Cam didn't attempt to pass any deeper than outside of the numbers. He was efficient. He was a strong game manager. I think when they talk about the New England offense in terms of just the New England game plan, both offensively, defensively, special teams and such, how they, you know, kind of Mesh what they're going to do with some of the weaknesses of the teams that they're going to be facing. So one week, it could be a situation where they're going to run the ball, run the ball, run the ball, run the ball. Then the next week, depending upon the strength of the defense, the offense is going to pass the ball, pass the ball, pass the ball, pass the ball, pass the ball. Pass the ball. So you can never get any type of tendencies to what the Patriots are always going to do because they, you know, are flexible enough to equate their game plan to what the weaknesses of their opponent's defense is. With Newton, I don't know if you could do that. Now, you could say the same thing about uh, Tom Brady with the New England Patriots. No matter, you know, how much flexibility they have, they are never going to have Tom Brady run the football as much as they did with Cam Newton. Uh, Tom Brady was never going to be the running threat from the quarterback position in his 20 years of playing under the center for the New England Patriots. I don't care what the weaknesses of the opponents were. Tom Brady was not going to be out there running the football and getting hit and doing all those type of things. So moving forward now with Cam Newton, I don't think regardless of what the weakness is, for instance, if their opponents have a weak secondary, I don't think that Cam Newton is going to go back and start throwing the ball 40 to 45 times. That's not Cam Newton. That's not the best thing to get out of Cam Newton. Bill Belichick, who's one of the greatest coaches in any sport, Anywhere, anytime, of course, knows that I'm knows that much better than I do. But the strength for those guys is basically just to uh, have Cam do what he does. So, of course, as I mentioned before on my YouTube channel is discussing this. My only question is, is Cam Newton built to be taking this type of punishment to be running the, the ball as much as he did over an inter- interrupted, uninterrupted 16-game season? I mean, this is a guy who's had over 934 carries and multiple surgeries throughout his career. Are we expecting Cam Newton to still be, I mean, they designed 13 running plays for Newton. So are we expecting in week 12, 13, and 14 to have Cam Newton still running the ball on design running plays 8, 10, 12 times a game, and depending upon the weaknesses of the defense, the are we going to have Cam Newton run the ball 15, 16, 17 times a game in week 13, 14 of the NFL season? I wouldn't think so. I would not think so whatsoever. And especially when you take a look at some of the um, wide receiver wide receiver weapons that Cam Newton is dealing with, are you really going to be asking him at any time of the season to you know try to start throwing the ball 30 to 40 times a game, 45 times a game? I don't think so. I really don't think so. But it was a good, strong opening for the Patriots. They're playing the Miami Dolphins, a solid, continuously improving team. Don't think that they're a playoff team yet. They played play the Dolphins at home. That's fine. Um, Belichick, at the coach of the Patriots, for the most part, you know, in September has been a little bit rocky in terms of the first four or five games of the season. There's been many... A seasons with Belichick as the head coach for the New England Patriots, where they've started the season two and two, two and three, one and one, one and two, those type of things. They get better as the season moves on, but this is basically new for everybody. So we'll see, we'll see. But for the NFL, man, it was a good, solid opening day weekend. The Arizona Cardinals looked uh, pretty good in defeating the uh, San Francisco 49ers, not reading too much into the 49ers this season so far. Don't think that their defense is going to be as dominant as they were last season, but I still think Kyle Shanahan as your offensive play caller, I mean, how bad can it be? You're speaking about the the Baltimore Ravens. Uh, They look very strong. Lamar Jackson looked like he improved in the offseason in terms of with his passing game, not as much reckless running as he did before, so, I mean, that was something that was good to see, uh, Tiddy Bridgewater, I thought looked pretty comfortable, and did pretty well, as the starting quarterback for the uh, Carolina Panthers against the uh, Las Vegas Raiders, so, they look pretty good, um, uh, Pittsburgh Steelers, their defense still seems to be pretty strong, in the Monday night game against Daniel Dime Jones and the New York Giants, so, we'll see, a lot of moving parts, a lot of things moving on, but, uh, it was just awesome to get back to watching some NFL football, and I cannot wait for the continuance of NFL football Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, taking it one Sunday at a time with the pandemic looming. We don't know what the future holds, so let's live and let's enjoy in watching football in the near present state. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. A lot of things going down today in the world of sports. NBA action. Oh, the Clippers, the Clippers, the Clippers, 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 say goodbye to the Los Angeles Clippers. They completed the biggest collapse in NBA playoff history last night with a 104-87 loss to the Denver Nuggets in Game 7 of the Western Conference Semifinals. Jamal Murray for Denver scored 40 points in the game. 25 in the first half. Nikola Jokic had a triple-double by the third quarter. He finished the game with um, with uh, 13 points, 22 rebounds, and uh, uh, 13 assists, despite shooting 5 of 13 from the field. It was the third straight game that Denver, again, overcame a double-digit deficit. They were trailing by 7 points. They were trailing in game seven by 12 points in the first half. They were down 61-54 with 10:50 left to go in the third quarter. And then they said, fuck it. They went on a 35-13 run to build a 15-point lead in the fourth quarter. One time in the second half, they led by as many as 20. And the Los Angeles Clippers quit. The Los Angeles Clippers said, fuck it. The Los Angeles Clippers let go of the rope. The Los Angeles Clippers gave up. At one point... Los Angeles made 8 of 37 shots in the second half. They quit. It was disgraceful. It was inexcusable. It was implausible. It was embarrassing. It was embarrassing. It was shocking and everything else in between. So Denver becomes the first team in NBA history to rally from a 3-1 series deficit twice in the same postseason. As you remember, in the first round, they beat Utah in Game 7 after being down 3-1. And in that series, they looked like they were down and out. Do you realize that in the final three games of the season, listen I mean, in the final three games of the series, listen to this, man. The Clippers were outscored 181 to 119 in the second half. That's an average of 60 to 39. 60 to 39, Nikola Jokic. You know, I always speak about, not always because, you know, I have other things that I care about in life. But when I speak about, you know, the top young players in the NBA and who's going to be the guy, who's going to be that player moving forward that's going to, you know, be that all-star, who's going to be that champion, who's going to be that all-NBA, who's going to be that all-MVP type. And I named John Morant, and I named Zion, and I named Giannis, and I named Luca, and I named Devin Booker, and I name uh, all these other guys. At one time, I actually added in Jamal Murray Without even adding in Nikola Jokic, how fucking stupid am I to not have a? Um, when we're speaking about some of the young players, the John Morant and all those guys who are going to be leading this next revolution of NBA basketball players for the next generation, the generation after that, how can you not? How could I not add Nikola Jokic? Wendell, you fucking stupid motherfucker! Yeah. Ooh, ah. ooh. Oh, oh, mm. boy, I deserve that beat down. I deserve that beat down. I'm sorry, Wendell. I'll never, I'll never make that mistake again. Please don't hurt me anymore. Please don't hit me anymore. I swear, I won't. God, I'm sorry. I didn't know Nicola was that fucking good. Ah, shit. Okay. Oh, okay. But man, he was the MVP of the series, he really was. The Clippers had nobody. <laughs> The Clippers had nobody that could stop them. They tried Kawhi. They tried Zubach. They tried Harold. They tried Jamal Green. They tried everybody. Mark, Marquise Morse. They tried everybody, man. Nobody, nobody was able to stop them. Average 25 points, 11 rebounds, six assists. He got Jamal Murray's shots. He got Paul Millsap was the guy. I mean, you could say the turning point of the series was when Paul Millsap. What was it? Game? What about it? Game six? See, games four, five, and six, or games five, six, and seven, especially games five and six. I'll tell you the truth, game five, I kind of watched that with one eye open and one eye doing something else, because at the time, the Clippers were ahead three to one, and I was like, okay, this series is over, the Clippers have caught their stride, and the Clippers are doing well, and Denver was a nice story, but uh, you know, the Clippers now, after losing game two in embarrassing fashion, they got serious, kind of sort of like what they did with the Dallas Mavericks when they lost that big lead, and Luka went nuts and hit that uh, memorable game-winning shot, and it seemed to piss off the Clippers. So they came out in game five and put up 151 points and put a beatdown on the Dallas Mavericks for the rest of the game or for the rest of that series. And I thought that after losing game two to the Nuggets the way they did, in game three or four, it looked like the Clippers got angry. Like the Clippers were like, oh, you guys think you're going to win this series? Well, check this out. So they put the beatdown, they put the smackdown on them, and I thought... I went under the assumption that, okay, this is the way it's going to be. Denver's going to let go of the rope once things get tough, once things get hard. Yeah, they did do that against Utah, but guess what? The Los Angeles Clippers, they hate Utah. This is a team that's going to be vying. This is going to be a team who is going to be playing for the NBA championship. This is what I was thinking going into game five with the Clippers that had three games to one. And when they got out to that big lead in the second half, I was, you know, basically just kind of became a little bit uninterested until Denver started coming back. So, you know, basically, I I forgot which game it was because game six, I completely forgot because I was watching NFL football all day and I didn't really pay attention too much on the replay of the Nuggets and Clippers game six, especially since I knew the outcome. But when Paul Millsap basically stood up, to Marquis Morris. And look, you know, Paul Millsap is no chump. Paul Millsap is, Paul Millsap is not going to back down to anybody. But it, it kind of reminded me a little bit of game two of the, like I was there, right? It kind of reminded me of the storyline of game two between the Philadelphia 76ers and the Portland Trailblazers in the 1977 NBA Finals, when the Philadelphia 76ers, after, you know, putting on a show and beating up the Portland Trailblazers in game one, and they were doing the same thing in game two. And then Daryl Dawkins and Maurice Lucas squared off. And, uh, you know, for the first time, because, you know, Philadelphia was kind of clowning the trailblazers, and Daryl Dawkins thought he was going to continue to tra- to clown the trailblazers, and he did some things that were nefarious, and Maurice Lucas was like, nah, motherfucker, I ain't having any of that shit, and those two motherfuckers squared up. I mean, fist up, ready to go, YouTube it, if you don't know what I'm talking about. And that had such an adverse effect on the Philadelphia 76ers and such a... Uh, such a rejuvenating uh, effect on the Portland Trailblazers because it gave them their balls. It gave them their uh, backbone. It gave them their belief. And I remember Daryl Dawkins, the story was correct. Daryl Dawkins was pissed off that, you know, no one really came to, I don't know if he would come to his rescue, but basically it's like, you know, I'm squaring up against Maurice Lucas over here, and where the fuck are you guys at? So you guys are just going to leave me out here all by myself, huh? So that caused a great division within the 76ers locker room on a team that really wasn't close and had chemistry issues to begin with. That was the team of Bobby Jones and Dr. J and Lloyd B. Free, and that's that's before he came World B. Free, but Lloyd Free and George McGinnis, who had a terrible series that year, and uh, Dawkins and, and those guys, and Joe Jellybean Bryant, who was the father of Kobe Bryant, so... That team coached by Gene Hsu, who just played nothing but one-on-one basketball, Dr. J, in his first season with uh, Philadelphia after coming over to the ABA. So that team basically just played for themselves and really weren't together and really had bad chemistry. And then you had a Portland team that played team basketball, Bill Walton, Bobby Gross, Lionel Hollins, um, uh, as I said before, Maurice Lucas. Those guys played at the team, Jack Ramsey, much better coach. And those guys got it together. They believed, and then they came back and beat the 76ers 4-2, winning four straight games. So that was the same thing, I think, with Paul Millsap and Marcus Morris. I don't know how much of a negative effect that it had on the entire Clipper organization in terms of, you know, Morris talking about where were you guys, but when Millsap stood up and wasn't going to take any of the bullshit that... uh that Marcus Morris was trying to uh, give him, I think that really lit a fire under the asses of the Denver Nuggets and was the catalyst for them to uh, go ahead and make this comeback. Michael Porter Jr. in spots played great. I thought Gary Harris coming back and some of the defense that he provided and some of the wide open three shot making that he did was important. Jeremy Grant. You know his athleticism on the boards and everything. I think played a a big role in the comeback for the uh, for the Denver Nuggets. But the foundational pieces for what happened in this series was the play of Jamal Murray, especially in Game Seven, and the continued dominance of Nikola Jokic. The consistent dominance of Nikola Jokic after Game Four. There, there was just nobody. It, 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 we, we saw this a little bit in the first round series with the Clippers against the uh, Dallas Mavericks that basically they didn't have anybody. You take a look at the defense and the Clippers were going to be known for their defense because of uh, Paul George at the time was regarded as one of the best two way players in the game. Kawhi Leonard, arguably the best or second best two way player in the game. You had uh, people like Patrick Beverly who was known for their defense. Yeah, that might be true, but if you really think about it, those guys are really made, as far as defense is concerned, to shut down guys who might be a little bit lanky, might be a little bit more athletic, might be a little bit smaller. Maybe think of about a 6'4", 6'5", shooting guard, or a 6'2", 6'3", point guard of a smaller statue. They are not built. Paul George isn't built to be a strong defensive player against a guy, say, like Luka Dantich, who is about six foot seven, six foot eight, and is thick. You know, in his I wouldn't say he's beefy, but he's thick. The same thing with Kawhi Leonard. Kawhi Leonard doesn't have the build, the hold off someone of that stature, a physical stature of a Luka Dantich. That's the reason why when Luka would get him on the, on, on his hip, or get him to his shoulder, that he could easily maneuver his way and get them on his back, and then he could do whatever he wanted to, whether it was getting to the foul line, whether it was shooting easy shots, whether it was uh, setting up teammates for wide-open three-pointers when the Clippers rotated. So that was the same thing with Nikola Jokic. There was nobody on that team except Nikola Jokic even presented a bigger problem because, at least with Dantich, you could have someone like uh, you know Marcus Morris you could have a couple of guys you know give him a, a little bit of trouble and Luca was mainly starting the offense Luca was mainly starting his pick and roll action about 21 22 23 feet away from the basket so you know he had to do the, do a lot get by switch off hunt for centers hunt for Zubac and then start working from 22 feet to you know get near the basket Get to the foul line extended. Get to one of the elbows and work from there. You know, and he was still settling a lot of time for step back threes um, on some of his on some of his uh, offensive uh, offensive plays for Dallas. With the Nuggets, Jokic could just park his ass, his big ass, about six seven feet away from the basket with his back to the basket on the block, and Montrez Harold wasn't going to do anything. You can sit there and talk about yeah, and, and, and it's legit. It's legit. No doubt it's legit about Montrez Harold, the fact that he was rusty, the fact that he lost his grandmother who was so important to him and the fact that he was, you know, still hadn't gotten over that. Hell, my dad died almost three years ago. I still haven't gotten over that. So I can understand the fact that here was a guy who lost the uh, love and importance and foundation of who he was and his grandmother and him trying to grieve over that and the fact that he had to come back after not playing basketball, and he had acclimated himself to a bubble while dealing with this, both physically and mentally, and going ahead and um, you know playing in such a high-stakes game of NBA basketball, such as such against a skilled player as Nikola Jokic, I mean, I can understand the difficulty that he would have. But I don't care if everything in Montrezl Herald's life was the greatest thing going of any person who's ever walked the face of the earth. He was going to have some huge problems due to just his size, his lack of height against someone like a Nikola Jokic who on the defensive end, he couldn't use his size and his strength and its girth to uh, move Jokic because Jokic number one was, would not be moved. And number two, you can't speed Jokic up. So, I mean, good Lord have mercy. Uh, Nikola destroyed Absolutely destroyed Montrez Harold to the fact that one of the criticisms that Doc Rivers is uh, being heaped upon in terms of his coaching you know, dealing with his inflexibility. I mean, hell, he made Mike Budenholzer look like Nick Nurse in terms of trying things and going outside the box and everything like that. Well, one of the things that Doc is getting destroyed about is why the fuck are you playing Montrez Herald? Why were you continually playing Montrez Harold on Nikola Jokic when he was just getting lambasted, when he was just getting beat down like uh, like he was a pogo to clown? I mean, what the hell is up with that? Well, I mean, in Doc's defense, he would say, well, who else am I going to put on him? I can't put Paul George on him. I can't put for long stretches of time Kawhi Leonard on him and then ask him to turn around and give me 25 and 11 on offense. I can't put Jermichael Green on him for a long periods of time. I I, whom, I can't put um, Moore, Mar- Marcus Morris on him for long periods of time. I, I don't got any depth at the center position. If Zubac gets in foul trouble, I, I, I can't have him foul out after playing only 12, 13 minutes. So someone's got to guard him. And Montrez is the sixth man of the year. I believe in him. He believes in me. I, that's who I got to go with. I didn't have anybody else. I didn't have any other option, which was one of the surprising things because we talked so much about the Los Angeles Clippers having all this depth, but yet still they had nobody. I mean nobody. I mean absolutely nobody that could have stopped uh, Nikola Jokic. So he was he was the MVP of the series. He was Luka Dantich for the Clippers, except only harder again because he was bigger tougher, stronger, and he started his offense a lot closer to the basket than uh, Dantich did. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. So the uh, Western Conference Finals are set, man, the Los Angeles Lakers versus the Denver Nuggets, and I'm not counting Denver out, I guess you really can't count Denver out, I really, the series, I guess the series is really not going to be able to start until the Lakers are up 3-1 and up 18 points with 5 minutes left to go in the third quarter. That's when the Nuggets are going to be like, all right, let's start playing, of course, They're not playing the Jazz. Of course, the Nuggets wouldn't be playing the Los Angeles Clippers, who proved to be mental midgets. They're going to be playing LeBron James and Anthony Davis. And if that happens, they ain't going to win. I think the Lakers are going to win this series in six games. I think that uh, you know, as much as uh, Jokic is going to give out some punishment and give out some lessons and, and, and some schooling lessons on how to play basketball in the low post, to uh, Javale McGee and Dwight Howard's going to get some action, and I'm quite sure for stretches there's going to have uh, they're going to have uh, uh, Anthony Davis go ahead and uh, deal with Jokic. I think the I think the advantage in terms of the front court uh, the, between Anthony Davis and Jokic, I think it's going to go to Anthony Davis, and uh, because of that, I don't think there's anybody on. Dallas that can deal with LeBron James. I'm quite sure they'll start off maybe with uh, Jeremy Grant. They might then include Paul Millsap. I don't, they're not going to put Michael Porter Jr. on them. They're not going to put Gary Harris on them. I don't know how much Paul Millsap can do anything. Uh, they're not going to put Mason Plumlee on them. So there's really nobody. There's really nobody out there as far as the Nuggets are concerned who are going to be able to uh, deal with LeBron James. Wow, these guys are beating the fuck out of John Moxley. What did he do? Gee whiz! Uh, so uh, ooh, oh these guys are beating the shit out of him, and the match hasn't even started yet. I digress. But um, yeah, so I think that the uh, Lakers are going to have that advantage. Then you're speaking again about a situation where, uh, you know, Anthony Davis, as 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 great as Jokic is, is on the offensive end, he still. He still needs some work on the defensive end. Now, he's gotten better. He's improved, but he's still not the rim stopper uh, that's going to be able to affect Anthony Davis when he takes it to the rim. He's going to be able to catch that ball, turn and face from about 10 to 12 feet out and be able to jab step, get to the rim, shoot the jumper off glass from the left or right side of the court. So I think while Jokic, I think, is going to be able to do work also, I think that the uh, combination of LeBron and Anthony Davis is going to be too much. Now, Jamal Murray, I said this before about Damian Lillard when the Trailblazers were playing the Lakers in the first round, I thought for the Trailblazers to be competitive with the Lakers, Damian Lillard was going to have to score 50, in a not just one game, but in a couple of games. I think for the Denver Nuggets, especially in the backcourt that the Lakers have, I think Jamal Murray... While not having to do what he did against the Utah Jazz, I think that would be too much to ask for anybody to have that much of a spectacular series, you know, multiple times. But I think that the, uh, I think that Jamal Murray is going to have to average, if not twenty-eight to thirty, damn near close, and he's going to have to have two or three games like he did in Game Seven against the Clippers. And in game one and seven and six, like he did against the Utah Jazz. So I I, I think it'll be a competitive series. But uh, I think in the end, you're going to be seeing the Los Angeles Lakers in the NBA Finals. My prediction, the Lakers in six. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Bonjour. Bonsoir. Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace. Come on, Television. Très bien, merci vous Wendell's World in Sports. que pasa mi amigos. What's happening? What's going on? Konishiwa. To all my beautiful, lovely brothers and sisters out there. Wendell's World in Sports. Shalom my wonderful brothers and sisters wendell's world in sports so glad that you could be with us wassalamu alaikum, my brothers and sisters wendell's world in sports i'm your host my name is wendell wallace hope that you're doing well i hope that you're educating yourself i hope that you're learning i hope that you're growing i'm hoping that you are continuing to recognize the situations in the world today so we can make them better. I hope that you have not forgotten that police brutality in this country towards black and brown people are continuing every single day that we must not give up the fight that we must not, uh, forget that we must not get sidetracked. This is an ongoing thing. We also have to remember that this is a situation. In terms of some of the things that we're dealing with right now are going to be historic, are going to be taught to your great-great-great-grandchildren in middle school, in high school, not just in this country, but throughout the world. We are making history right now. We're not making history for my generation. We are not going to have a utopia society tomorrow, next week, next year, next decade. Those things aren't going to be happening. But by the time I leave this earth, by the time that I'm reunited with my dad and by then my mom, I will be able to say, hopefully, that I did my part in seeing what I could do to make this world a better place for everybody, unity, harmony, and make it right for everybody, equality for everybody, a true playing field, not making it Righteous and not making it harmonious and not making it loving and everything for just a certain group of people But for everybody the definition becomes more broader and what equality is all about not equality Based on what one group of people think or what one group of race thinks one group of gender thinks one group of sexual orientation thinks it's for everybody So that's what I do. That's what I'm gonna try to do and I if I lose friends over it fine If I anger people, fine, but, uh, you know, when everything is all said and done, I got to look myself in the mirror and say, did you talk? Did you walk the walk or were you just full of shit? And, uh, one thing I can say, man, I don't lie. I don't bullshit for the most part when it comes to this. And, uh, I'm proud of what I do. I'm proud of who I am and I'm proud of what I'm trying to uh, fight for for everybody, but especially for black and brown people, because after all, I'm both black, brown, and beautiful, Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us, the LA Clippers, oh, those LA Clippers, what are you gonna do, man, what are you gonna do with this team, I know Laker fans right now, they're clowning, they're laughing, and a lot of it, the Clippers brought, them, brought this shit on themselves, you know, when you go in there and you talk like you've done a bunch of shit and you talk about, you know, and these guys turn it on and turn it off and you people look around and it's like, wait a minute, Kawhi Leonard has won a championship. Okay, Doc Rivers has won a championship, but what what have you motherfuckers done? I mean, what has Patrick Beverly done? What has Marcus Morris done? What has Lou Williams done? What has Zubach done? What have, I mean, not all these guys were talking shit. Not all these guys were walking the walk like they were, you know, they had just gotten off playing with the Golden State Warriors. But, uh, you know, a lot of this nonsense, a lot of this arrogance, a lot of this perceived, we are great, we are elite, came, by the, came back to bite them in the ass, especially public enemy number one. And I'm not talking about Flavor Flav Chuck D or especially Professor Griff or Terminator X, Paul George. What the fuck, man? So in game seven, Kawhi Leonard and Paul George shall combined 10 for 38 for 24 points. Four of 18 for the three-point line. Leonard finished with 14 points on six of 22 shooting. Ow. George finished playoff p. Finished with 10 points on four of 16 shooting. Paul and Kawhi combined for zero fourth quarter points. They went one. They went 0 for 11 from the field and 0 of seven from the three-point uh, line. And in the fourth quarter they were the team was a combined two and eighteen at one point. Jeez, old flippity flop, man. It's just it, it was just shocking. I mean, you, you got to the point really, because it's like, you know, game five, I can't believe this shit. The Clippers, you know, took their foot off the, the gas pedal. They were arrogant. They, you know, let go of the rope in terms of we got this. It was the same thing with Dallas, you know, when they lost uh, game four. It was a situation was, oh, we got this. We're the Clippers. We're cool. We're fine. They thought the other team was going to give up. They didn't. And by the time those guys tried to get themselves rolling, they couldn't. Denver was already rolling. So in game five, you lose. You're still ahead three to two. So I'm thinking, okay, game six, just like the, um, Clippers did with the Mavericks in Game 5. They're going to be pissed. They're going to be upset. They're going to get down to business. I even predicted that Paul George, Game 5 against the Dallas Mavericks, was going to go out and have a great game, which he did scored over 30 points. He looked like regular season Paul Pierce. He looked like one of the guys that's one of the top 10 players in the NBA for the past couple of years, especially last year when he was with the Oklahoma City Thunder. So I thought history was going to repeat itself in Game 6. It was like, okay... They were going to close it out. The Denver Nuggets, you're a nice squad. You're a pretty nice team, but fuck you. We're going to go ahead and get it done. And for two and a half quarters, for three and a half quarters, they did exactly that. But what happens? Hubris, arrogance got in the way again. They stopped playing. Denver Nuggets didn't. Give credit to Mike Malone. Give credit to that young squad. By the way, the cornerstones of that team, the Denver Nuggets, Nikola Jokic and Jamal Murray, 25 23 years old respectively. They didn't quit, they didn't give up. They didn't do what Houston did when they were playing the uh LA Lakers. They came back and they uh basically just destroyed the Los Angeles Clippers. And it was true. Nikola Jokic said after game 6, "Hey, look, man, all the all of the pressure Now is on the Los Angeles Clippers. And then with the empty words of Paul George talking about, yeah, you know, it might be 3-3, to but we're in control. No, you're not. No, you're not. You can't psychologically for a team after game four against the Dallas Mavericks where Doc Rivers actually came out and said that the team was mentally weak, I guess, during that one period of time in the series against the Dallas Mavericks, but what he was probably saying was no it just it's not just against the Dallas Mavericks during this particular example no we're a, we're a weak team period we're a weak, mentally weak team period and it and it showed and it absolutely showed in the way they bolstered the way they bragged the braggadocio, their nonsense empty words empty boasts empty bullshit and when push come to shove when things got tight they folded They quit. And if you think about it, all throughout this postseason, their their restart in Orlando, you can point to a time when, show me a, a time when things were getting tough, things were getting rough for the Clippers, and they came back and they persevered, and they showed tough, they showed grittiness. It didn't happen. When things got tough for the Clippers, they ran. When things got tough for the Clippers, they didn't respond. When things got tough for the Clippers, they played like they were scared. They played like they were insecure. They played with no confidence. They didn't play with any belief. As soon as the Denver Nuggets, and you saw that in game seven, and by that time it was pretty evident based on games Five, Six, Five and six, you saw what happened. They got, you know, the Denver started hitting some three-point shots. Even when the Clippers got ahead, it was like, okay, you know, even if you were a Clipper fan, you couldn't sit up there with any type of um, good feeling to say that, okay, we got this, the Clippers are going to turn it on, the old Clippers are going to come out, Kawhi Leonard's going to take over, Paul George is going to help him do that, Denver doesn't have the experience, Denver doesn't have the firepower, Denver doesn't have the talent, Denver doesn't have the Kawhi Leonard on their team who has won championships, this is Kawhi time to take things over. You didn't get that feeling when the uh, LA Clippers were up seven in game seven. In the third quarter. It was almost like. If you were a Clipper fan. Oh shit. If the Nuggets get this down. To a one or two possession game. What are the Clippers going to fucking do? You had to be nervous about that. And then. Once the Nuggets took the lead. And that one point lead became three. And then became six. And then became eight. Did you really have. Any hope, any belief that the Clippers were going to fight back? Did it look any time looking at the game like the Clippers, their body language, the way they played, did it look like they had any belief? What I saw when the Clippers got down or when the other team started to come back, I saw a team that was just jacking up threes, that were taking turns, going one-on-one, that weren't doing anything, that were panicking, and that's exactly what I saw in Game 7 with the Clippers. That's chemistry right there, man. That's some goddamn chemistry right there. And an interesting comment after the game from Lou Williams, who was equally as horrible. The former Six Man of the Year, and his nonsense in terms of what he did, going, uh, going to uh, you know get some chicken wings and putting his team, and he had to quarantine and do all those type of things. He said, "We didn't have, we did have championship expectations. We had the talent to do it." I don't think we had the chemistry to do it. And it showed. What the fuck is going on with this team? What in the hell? Yahoo Sports Chris Haynes reported Paul George and Montrez Harold, they got into a heated verbal exchange during Los Angeles' uh, Game 2 defeat in the series against Denver. It it was reported that Harold was upset that George blamed him for a turnover when George was in the wrong by making a pass while Harold was guarded by Jamal Murray and Michael Porter Jr. And then Harold responded with something along the lines of, you know, when Paul was like, you need to be there, you need to do this, you need to, need to do that. When it was clearly the fault of Paul George, Harold responded with the criticism that George was heaping upon Harold by saying, you're always right, no one can tell you nothing. And the expl- expletives were being thrown out by both of those players. And Montrez, believe me, I know how it feels. Yeah, I, I know somebody, I know a couple of people who uh, feel that they're always right and feel that you can't tell them anything and feel that they don't all and feel that they have all the answers. Oh, believe me, I deal with a motherfucker like that every day. Yeah, yeah, it gets, uh, gets a little bit tiring, especially when that person doesn't know what the hell he's talking about, but I digress. But, uh, you know, so the expletives, so those guys got into it, started yelling and screaming at each other. Now, George eventually toned it down. But Harold was like, fuck that, man. I'm going to keep going on. So it got so heated and it got so loud. That we got to remember now, they're not playing in front of fans. They're playing in an empty arena. And you're also speaking about, you know, family and friends were in the arena. Kids, babies, toddlers were in the arena. And you got these two guys up here, I'm just quite sure, motherfucking each other and fuck you, bitch, that, the other, nigga, you can't do this shit, fuck my dick and all this kind of nonsense. And you got kids and women over there and they can hear all this stuff. So teammates began (laughs) clapping on the sidelines just to disguise what was going on in an attempt to defuse the situation. And it wasn't until Doc Rivers, you know, took a seat to go over to the game plan that everybody kind of ceased and desist. So what the hell is going on with the Los Angeles Clippers? Mark Spears of the undefeated reported that several Clippers were so fatigued during game seven against Denver that they struggled to play stints longer than three minutes and asked out of the game for a breather in the fourth quarter. What? What? I I don't know, man. I mean, what's going on with Black America's head coach, Doc Rivers, coaching the Clippers? Yeah, that's what I'll say. For my community, if you're talking about the black head coach, the national black head coach for the black community, Doc Rivers. Doc Rivers, it ain't Tony Dungy. It ain't uh it ain't uh, Mike Tomlin. Doc Rivers. What's what's going on with him, man? He's been he's been the head coach for three of the teams that have blown three and one leads. There's only been thirteen in NBA history. He's the only three of them. He's also coached three teams that have blown three to two leads. Now, some of these look You take a look and, you know, the devil's in the details and you know, you, you look a little bit closer. I mean, round one in 2003 where they blew a 3-1 to lead to the Pistons. I mean, that season they were unbelievable. That was the year that they thought they were going to get Tim Duncan. They thought that they were going to get Grant Hill. And they did get Grant Hill, but he had ankle problems, so he didn't play. Tim Duncan decided to remain with San Antonio. And the Detroit Pistons were the best team in the Eastern Conference at that time. And you're also speaking about the Magic team that had Tracy McGrady, Daryl Armstrong, and nobody else. So... The Pistons were clearly, clearly the better team than the Orlando Magic that year. Then you had, like, for instance, the 2010 NBA Finals where the Lakers beat the uh, Celtics after being down 3-2. to two. Well, that was also the game where I think Kendrick Perkins in Game 6 got injured. So for Game 7, Boston was depleted because they weren't playing with Perkins. And, uh, you know, Kobe went with 6-24 for 24 in Game 7, and it took Ron Artest. To save them in terms of so I mean some of this stuff, some of this stuff you really can't. It's not all you know Doc Rivers' fault. The Lakers, uh, the Clippers blowing a three to one lead against the Houston Rockets in 2015. That's the game where shit. What game five at the uh, at the Staples Center? The Clippers were up by I don't know double digits, and that was the game where Kevin McHale, then the coach of the Houston Rockets, sat James Harden. When the uh, Rockets made their comeback and Josh Smith and and a couple of other guys who couldn't hit three-pointers to save their lives, all of us started, just started making ridiculous three-pointers. So, I mean, you know, some of that stuff, yeah, some of that stuff Doc has to own, but some of that stuff is kind of like, you know, I, I can't, you know, do that and I can't blame him for every one of those or, you know, make that a referendum on how good of a coach that he is. The best job that he's ever done, though, has always been. I mean, maybe with the exception of the team that won the um, the team that he coached in Boston, which won the championship the first year that Kevin Mc, that uh, Kevin Garnett, Ray Allen, and Paul Pierce got together. They drafted Ray John Rondo. They picked up P.J. Tucker during the um, middle of the season. They went on to beat the Los Angeles Lakers in uh, six games, blew them out, absolutely blew them out big time in Game Six. That was the that was the game where we started questioning. Laker fans were questioning what kind of heart does uh, Marcus All have because uh, he showed none in that series as he was getting abused by Kevin Garnett. But other than you know that team that he had with the Celtics, Coach Rivers has always done best with less in terms of the coaching that he did. Not only did he do a great job, he came to fame as far as him being a really good coach when he was coaching the Orlando Magic and he coached a team that was supposed to be tanking and getting in the lottery. And, you know, after the year that they saved all the cap room so they could go ahead and try to get Grant Hill and uh, Tim Duncan and such and uh, Tracy McGrady and such, but they still overachieved, made the playoffs. Then again, with with Orlando, with a depleted depleted squad, they went ahead and uh, made the playoffs. Then... With the Clippers, I mean, if you take a look at him as a coach with the Clippers, the best job that he's done as a coach was last season, where they finished 48-34, eighth in the Western Conference, a team again. That was the first year, or the first or second year, that the Lob City wasn't around. They traded uh, Chris Paul, or Chris Paul went to Houston, and uh, you know uh, they traded uh, Blake Griffin, so that was a team that where they had Patrick Beverly and Lou Williams, Montrez Harold, Danilo Gallinari, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, Garrett Temple, Cendarius Thornwell, Wilson Chandler. I mean, none of these guys would you be ranking as all-star players or anything like that. Yeah, Lou Williams had won the sixth man of the year, and was considered, you know, one of the better six men uh, in the game. But for the most part, they were a bunch of guys who really weren't supposed to be doing much. And I remember Rivers at the end of the season talking about how much he enjoyed coaching this team. And this was the first year that he was no longer the GM and the president of basketball operations for the team. He got Lauren Frank, moved him from the assistant coach position, put him in the um, GM position. And he was just allowed to coach. And he just enjoyed that team so much. He talked about it so much. He did an awesome job. That team wasn't supposed to be as good as it was. I mean, if you remember that team in game two, that was the team that uh, overcame a 31-point deficit in the third quarter to the Golden State Warriors, the team that went on to uh, play in the NBA championship, Golden State Warriors, in game two to tie up that series. Now, they went ahead and lost the subsequent three games, but uh, that Warrior team, that Warrior team reminded me a lot of, oh, I don't know, a team like uh, the Denver Nuggets, a team like, oh, I don't know, the uh, Miami Heat, a team with the mentality and the toughness and the grit and the heart of someone like, oh, I don't know, the Toronto Raptors, and uh, they were great. They were fun to watch, but man, how many times, that that has been the only year Coach Rivers has been the coach of the Clippers where you could say that was a team that you could enjoy. That was a team where you watched and you said, you know, I want that team to win. You could root for those teams. When they had Chris Paul and Blake Griffin and DeAndre Jordan and J.J. Redick and those guys during those times where the Clippers were supposed to be competing for championships... And that was the year that, you know, Doc came over. He got traded from Boston and came over because he didn't want to coach a rebuilding team anymore. So they sent him over to the uh, Clippers. And again, as I mentioned before, Chris Paul and those guys were already over there. They made a couple of more acquisitions. And that was supposed to be, you know, the thing that was supposed to get them to be NBA championship material. Well, from the time that he coached that team, Lob City, From 2013 to 2017, they didn't finish anywhere close to being an elite team. They finished third in the Western Conference twice. And then the other times, they finished fourth. They made the conference semifinals uh, two times. And then the other times, they lost in the first round of the series and looked bad doing it. I remember that last game that, quote-unquote, Lob City and Doc Rivers were around, I mean, they were embarrassed at home by Utah. Gordon Hayward didn't work on those guys. So I don't know, man. I don't know what's going on with Doc Rivers. I mean, he can coach. And he proved with superstars that he could coach. A friend of mine was talking about, at one time, they had, uh, he was working. Uh, and I don't know if it was a hotel or somewhere, but it wasn't on the court. And uh, this is when you know the Celtics were uh, doing their thing. And Kevin Garnett, Paul Pierce, Ray John Rondo, and Ray Allen walked in to an establishment that he was working at, or something like that. And he was like, Wendell, let me tell you something, man. You know, they were there for a while, this, that, and the other. And from that time period, the thoughts and opinions that I had of those guys were A, Paul Pierce is a thug. B, Kevin Garnett's an asshole. C, Ray John Rondo was really weird. And D, Ray Allen is a really good guy. Kind of fits. So the only reason why I'm saying this is that, you know, Doc has been able to be successful with alpha dogs, strong personalities, diverse personalities. So I, I showed that he did it in Boston. So I, I don't understand, again, with a team that was as talented as the Clippers were this season, not the fact that they lost. I mean, that bad enough. But now we just see, again, we see some of this behind-the-scenes stuff where it's kind of like, huh? What's going on? It's kind of like if, again, five or ten years from now, if someone writes a book, the inside, you know, inside the season of the 2019-2020 LA Clippers. Ooh, Malika Andrews. Ooh, if the 2019-2020 uh, NBA, uh, uh, the Los Angeles Clippers and go behind the scenes, If someone ever writes a book, I wouldn't be surprised after reading that. You come away with them. You come away with the uh, opinion of, damn, how did they even get as far as they did? So we'll see. We'll see. But, uh, you know, bad mix of chemistry, personalities. Where do you go? What, What do you do? What do you do if you're the Los Angeles Clippers? You have to run it back. None of this stuff about trading Paul George. You can't, you're can't. you not going to trade Paul George. That's one of the main reasons why Kawhi Leonard came to the Clippers. He came for Doc, and he came because you guys were going to get Paul George. You can't go ahead, especially with Kawhi being able to opt out of his contract after next season. You can't go ahead and make that risky move of trading Paul George unless in a conversation with Kawhi Leonard, Ballmer, Frank, Doc, somebody... A decision maker like that, they say, "Hey, uh, uh, you know what, uh, Kawhi? Yeah, uh, you know, uh, what do you feel about? Uh, uh, you know, maybe we, uh, uh, we go ahead and, uh, maybe think possibility of, uh, uh, yeah, Paul maybe Paul Jordan, yeah, uh, maybe he'll go somewhere else. Yeah, uh, what do you think?" And he says, "Uh, yeah, go ahead and do it." Then I mean, you know, then maybe you go ahead and do that, but. Without Kawhi's blessing, I'm not trading Paul George. No matter how bad it is, I'm not trading Paul George. And right now, Paul George is at his lowest point right now. So who are you even going to get that can equate to uh, Paul George? The Philadelphia 76ers, I don't think that they're going to be dumb enough. As many bad moves that uh, Elton Brand made, putting this team together. I don't think that he's going to be calling Lord Frank and talk, Lord Frank to talk about, Hey, you know what? You know, we'll give you Ben Simmons or Embiid or somebody for Paul George. I mean, they might offer you Tobias Harris. They might offer you Al Horford and some other pieces, but the two pieces that you would want if I were the Clippers, uh, to even think about the possibility of trading Paul George, namely Joel Embiid. And, um, Joel Embiid, and Ben Simmons. That's not happening. That's not happening. So if you're the Clippers, I mean, I don't know. You have to re-sign Montrez Harrell, don't you? I mean, there's really not too much flexibility. Because you signed Markey, Marcus Morris, you traded away your first-round pick when you did that. Um, and what would it also say if you went ahead and you traded Paul George? Basically, when you had to give up Shea Gilgis-Alexander, Danilo Gallinari, Five first-round draft picks, and the right to swap two other first-round draft picks. You can't, you can't send Paul George after you basically mortgage your franchise for the next five or six years to get this guy. You can't do it, no matter how bad he plays. I mean, you, you just hope that shame, embarrassment, disappointment. We'll get the Paul George. I don't know if Paul George, I don't know Paul George. Never met Paul George. Have never spoken to Paul George. Don't know the mentality of Paul George. Don't know the inner workings of Paul George. Don't know the people who are around Paul George. I don't know what motivates Paul George. So I can't sit here with any definitive things in terms of Paul George mentally taking it to the next level and being that guy. But uh, I don't know, man. Some Some guys aren't built like Jimmy Butler. So some guys aren't built like Kobe Bryant. Some, I mean, I hate to say it. Some guys aren't built like Tyler Hero. And from the evidence that's been shown throughout his career, Paul George ain't one of those guys. So you, you just hope that um, he gets a little bit better. He gets a little bit more upset. He gets a little bit more dedicated. He gets a little bit more pissed off, but I don't know. I don't know. I'm giving a pass to Kawhi. Six for 22. You know, I'm, I'm going to say stop with the nonsense about, you know, he's with LeBron and all that kind of stuff. I mean, Kawhi Leonard is a superstar. Kawhi Leonard is great. Um, LeBron James is otherworldly. But, um, you know, I'm not – the the performance by Kawhi Leonard, I'm, I'm not going to bury the guy. I'm not going to roast the guy. As I mentioned before, game seven of the NBA playoffs between Boston and uh, – Boston and the Lakers, I mean, Kobe went 6-24 for in Game 7. And Ron Artest had to save his ass. So, you know, everybody has bad games. Not everybody can go 40-20-20 in a Game 7. Not not everybody can go Nikola Jokic mixed in with Jamal Murray like uh, in that situation. Kawhi has two championships. Kawhi was the MVP of two finals. And I also think... Moving forward with the Clippers, and, and maybe this was the situation where this role was going to be filled by Pat Beverly or somebody. But the one thing about Kawhi, Kawhi is not at least I don't know I've not I'm not behind the scene with the Clippers, so I don't I don't know. But from the looks of things, Kawhi Leonard is not that guy who's that vocal leader. You know, the, Kawhi is is not that guy who is going to be getting in people's faces. You know, Kawhi is tough. Kawhi has, you know, impeccable character in terms of, you know, he ain't going to quit. He's not going to give in. He's not going to bow down. He's not going to back down. But I don't know if he inspires um, like like a real, real leader should. And look, we don't, look t- Tim Duncan wasn't the guy who was going to yell and scream and be demonstrative. And he got the best out of his players. You know, I mean, there's a different way to do it. Chris Paul yelled and screamed. There wasn't wasn't fearful or afraid to get in your face and embarrass you in front of 18,000 people. And how many championships has he won? Now I'm not saying that he's a loser or because of that, that's the reason why, but you know, leadership comes in many different forms. So the fact that Kawhi isn't like, you know, getting in Paul George's face or, you know, threatening his life. If he doesn't step it up in the locker room between the first and second quarters or at halftime, I'm not saying that makes Kawhi a bad leader. But if you remember the time that he won that championship, when he was with San Antonio, that was Tim Duncan's squad. That was Tim Duncan's team. And they had pros like Manu and they had pros like uh, Boris Diaw and Tony Parker and those guys. So, I mean, they weren't relying on Kawhi to pump them up, especially with Kawhi starting in the league and being in the league and, um, you know building his resume and such such, with a team like that, with a coach like that, with an organization like that. They didn't need to be, they didn't need to have Kawhi be that guy. When he won the championship in Toronto, I mean, the toughness, the grit, the heart and soul, whatever you want to say, that was Kyle Lowry. So, I mean, all the things that maybe Kawhi should have been doing with the Clippers, he didn't have to do that when he was in Toronto because yeah, that was basically Kyle Lowry's team. I mean, he had been there through the good. He had been there through the bad. He had been there through the ups and the downs and all arounds and getting down like a second machine, like his name was James Brown. Hi! But, uh, you know, so that was his that was his deal. That was his squad. So they didn't need Kawhi to come in there and, and 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 do those things. That was Kyle Lowry's job. Now, with him being with the Clippers, I mean, you're mixing in a little bit of you know Kawhi coming in with the foundation of guys who worked hard and were doing this and were kind of like the foundational pieces of the team moving forward, like Harold and Zubach and, and, and all those other guys. And now you come in with Paul George and Kawhi Leonard and some of the things and some of the routines that you were doing before that made you successful, playing hard every night, playing with intensity, not taking games off, not taking possessions off, all of those things – all of a sudden now, those things become compromised. I mean, we know that Kawhi is load management high in terms of his mentality and what he's going through in terms of the knees and everything like that, just the mileage and wear and tear. So he's going to be missing games. He's not going to be, you know, in that same mindset because he's a champion. He's a multiple-time champion. He's a all-NBA player, all of those things. But it, 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 could, it could mess with the chemistry in the mixture if you have – guys who might not be as talented as Kawhi, might not be burdening the responsibility of winning a championship like Kawhi, but yet and still, those guys are coming over him and Paul George and messing with the routine. That could rub some players the wrong way. It was the same situation in, uh, in uh, Brooklyn. You know, those guys were hard workers. Those guys, you know, did everything tough, this, that, and the other. Then you come in with Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant ain't going to follow the same protocol as Karis LeVert and Joe Harris. I mean, they're not going to give the same reverence and respectability to um, to Kenny Atkinson as some of the other guys who were with that team who had came through the system, who the coaching staff and the organization gave a chance to. They're not going to, uh, that that ain't going to work. Kevin Durant, and Kyrie Irving are too are too accomplished and too great to be doing those type of things, so it can fuck with your chemistry, and I think that was the thing. We I remember hearing situations during the regular season that some of the uh, Clipper players were kind of irked and kind of perturbed about, you know what? Why are we? Why do we have to go to practice every day and bust our butts while Kawhi Leonard can come and go as he chooses? Why do we have to – why does he get the opportunity? Why does he have the ability to say what he wants to practice and what he wants to play? That's bullshit. That ain't right. Are we a team or are we not a team? If we're a team, we got to do everything together. If we're not – and so you heard – I heard that story during the season. So I don't know, man. I don't know about – I don't know about the Clippers. I don't know what they're doing moving forward. If they stay put, I mean, they're still going to be a, a good team, no doubt about it, but uh, yeah, man, the Clippers are something else. And, and, and Paul George, jeez, Paul George, Paul George, Paul George. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. You know what? I'm going to say it real quick. Hey, Maria Taylor, let me read these two stories. I was going to save Maria Taylor for later, but uh, time is running out. And I want to mention, I want to mention her because she is absolutely fantastic. Yeah. So here's the story. Special dedication to one of the best sideline reporters and studio hosts in the business, male or female, Maria Taylor. Um, she was the target of some fucking jackass, the six seventy, the score in Chicago, uh, Dan McNeil who tweeted about Taylor on Monday Night Football during her debut at the Sideline Reporter, he suggested that her outfit, which included a fashionable and creative leather jacket top, I, I, I have no idea, made her look like she should be hosting an adult film award show. Ah-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha! ha 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 Man, Dan, that is hilarious! Where do you come up with this stuff? ah ha 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 Fuck you, man. So basically, his stupid ass got fired for uh, saying that shit. Awful announcing captured the tweet before McNeil deleted it, and uh, Rachel Williamson, the regional president for Inter- Intercom, released a statement to a Deadspin about McNeil's termination It said that Dan McNeil is no longer an employee at the score for each one of our world's... Each one of our for each one of us our words have power for our brands and on our personalities that is amplified and brings increased responsibility. How we choose to use our voices. Last night's suite and its integrating and humiliating tone to a fellow female broadcaster was unacceptable. We have the best teams in Chicago and we must continue to hold yeah, the best teams in Chicago. What? What? Have you seen Mitchell Trubisky play football? Have you seen uh, the Chicago Bulls lately? What are you talking about? We have the best teams in Chicago. Have you seen the Cubs? The White Sox are doing work, but I don't know. We have the best teams in Chicago, and we must continue to hold ourselves to high expectations and continue to be leaders in our organization, our industry, in our community. We apologize to all who were offended by Dan's words, especially Maria. Maria Taylor is awesome. I'm still learning the uh new rules new rules i'm still ignorant in some things and behind the times in some things when it comes to the me too movement when it comes to the woman women's movement so i don't know i mean i don't know if i should get in trouble or whatever but maria taylor is beautiful she's beautiful she's so pretty it's 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 mesmerizing sometimes And, you know, I don't want to go on and say that's her only, you know, that's her only deal. Like I'm just going to be sitting up there and just Maria Taylor, beautiful, Maria Taylor, beautiful. But, you know, ladies, let me ask you a question. I mean, I mean, how much can I expound on Maria Taylor is beautiful? Because she is. But and on top of that, she does such a great job. And it makes it easier for me to watch the shows because not only does she do a great job, She's just so beautiful. I don't know if that's objectification. I don't know if that's demeaning. I don't know what it is, but I mean, I'm sorry. I got to be real with it. I mean, now she wasn't any good. If she wasn't good at her job, I don't care how pretty she is. I'm not watching. First and foremost, she's got to be very talented at her job, which she is. She does a very good job. Silent reporting. She was great. Um, You know, um, I think she's the next star in terms of what these women's do, women's do, and men, for instance, in the business that they're in. Uh, you know, she's, she's awesome. And the fact that she is so talented and she does the job so well, and she's so absolutely gorgeous, it's just, you know, icing on the cake. The foundation that the fact that she's very good, very talented at her job, and no matter what she looked like, I didn't give a damn, if she looked like a female version of me, I would definitely tune in to watch because she does a great job. The fact that she's, the prettiest thing on television uh, just, you know, just adds to it, you know, same thing with Malika Andrews, same thing with uh, Taylor Rooks. I mean, you know, I, I don't give a damn how beautiful these women are. I don't, I don't care about that. The women's looks never bother me, never concern me. I don't care. I mean, you know, if, if I'm desperate enough or if I'm jonesing enough to, you know, look at beautiful women and that's it. I mean, that's what the internet is for, right? So, you know, I, when I when I'm watching sports or doing something together and I'm, I want to hear some good sports talk or when I want to hear some good analysis or I want to hear, you know, a professional getting it done. I don't give a fuck what you look like. I don't give a damn what your race is. I don't care what gender you are. I don't care what your sexual orientation is. I don't care what's going on in your home. I don't care what's happening. I don't care about any of that stuff. Can you do your job and can you do it well? And Maria Taylor does her job well in all those things. Oh, yeah, and I forgot to mention, she's absolutely gorgeous. Malika Andrews is fantastic at what she does. Oh, yeah, I forgot to mention, she's absolutely gorgeous. Taylor Rooks is doing great things for what she's doing. Uh, You know, some of the shit I don't get. Some of the shit I'm not interested in. You know, I'm getting close to get off my long guy concerning that stuff. But a lot of people like what she's doing. She's talented at it. And she just happens to be a very attractive woman, man. That's That's, that's great. That's great. So, you know, I mean, keep going, ladies. Keep doing what you're doing. Jackie McMullen is awesome. Uh, Lyndon Cohen is awesome. L. Duncan is awesome. These women, Jamel Hill is a superstar uh, in terms of, you know, her intelligence and her talent and everything. I mean, she's my, man, I mean, just far as just the total package of what a black woman is, in my opinion, it's Jamel Hill. I mean, she's, she's, she's awesome. She's everything. And, you know, the fact that she's a very attractive woman, for me, that comes in like fourth. I love the fact that she's intelligent. I love the fact that she's strong. I love the fact that she doesn't back down. I love the fact that she has a personality where she can hang with the fellas. I love the fact that, you know, you could be you around her and not worry about it because of how strong she is. That's my opinion of Jamel Hill from the outside looking in. I've never met Jamel Hill. I've never hung out with Jamel Hill. So, you know, I don't know how Jamel Hill is, you know, as, as you know, from a standpoint I've never met her from, but what how she presents herself on television and uh, social media and other things I mean I mean I'm in love with the uh, stuff that she does so you know all of this is to say that man you know men we we, ha- we have to do better and I'm trying I'm really trying and I'm learning I'm, I'm part of the male chauvinistic blah 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 I am I am and I'm trying to get better at it I really am working hard at it uh Wendell's World of Sports you know what I'll get to Boston and uh, Miami a little bit later I'm running out of time um Great game by Boston, a block by Bam out of Bayou. Woo! How the fuck did that guy not tear his arm off? Blocking the shot with his off arm. Unbelievable. I mean Miami is something else. I think that Boston is the more talented team. If you look at if you take a look at individuals. But uh, you know, Kimball Walker's gotta play better. Um, Jalen Brown, I forgot that you were on the court for long stretches. Jason Tatum was awesome, but the the, the offense near the end of the game was mind-blowing, was mind-boggling. I I understand. I mean, it was dribble, 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 dribble. dribble. You had Kimba Walker and Jason Tatum doing a two-man game, 27 feet away from the basket, and they're hunting for mismatches, and Kimba should be able to take Tyler Hero off the ball, but, you know, he's... 25 feet away from the basket, and Hero's like, well, you ain't going to shoot it from that far out, so I'll just back up a little bit. And Kemba's dribble, 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 dribble. 75, you know, he's 25 feet away from the basket with seven seconds on the shot clock, and it's dribble, 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 dribble. And he's forcing shots. He's forcing bad shots. Jason Tatum, near the end. I mean, he's shooting step, you know, step to your left, step to your right, you know, Kobe Bryant, Hero-type 25-foot jump shots. You know, after he's played over 40 minutes. I mean, that's, come on now. Come on now. So, you know, Brad's got to, Brad, look at me like I know the guy. Coach Stevens is going to, like I know what coaching an NBA team is all about. I mean, I'm I'm quite sure that Coach Stevens would design a little bit better offense for those guys to get shots near the end of the game. But Jimmy Butler's tough, man. One thing about Jimmy Butler, one thing that's going to come out of this series, especially for a budding superstar like uh, Jason Tatum, who I think if Jimmy Butler smacked him, Jason Tatum is going to smack him right back. But, you know, Jimmy Butler is going to be the bully on the block. Jimmy Butler is going to be the guy that's going to come up and punch you in the face and he's going to stand right next to you and say, motherfucker, try to punch me back and see what the fuck happens. And Jason Tatum, I mean, not literally, but, I mean, you know, he's that guy that's going to be like, you know, I'm looking for a fight. I'm walking around, I'm looking for someone to uh, fight me. And I like this guy. This guy might... Might give me a little run for my money. Let me see what happens if I come up and punch him right in the jaw. Well, Jason Tatum is going to punch him right back. It's going to be only the question of who's going to be hitting harder. And how many times can someone get hit back? Or is Jason Tatum going to be the guy that's going to be the bully and look for someone to punch? In game one, it was Jimmy Butler, especially down the stretch. So Jimmy Butler is giving Jalen Brown, Kimball Walker, and Jason Tatum a lesson, a schooling... In being a bad motherfucker one-on-one. Being the main alpha dog one-on-one. Man, Jimmy Butler on the basketball court oozes machismo. Jimmy Butler on the court is the baddest motherfucker around. I mean, you put a grizzly bear, Jorge Masvidal, and a fucking lion tiger. I mean, Jimmy Butler's going to look at him and say, which one of you motherfuckers is going first? (laughs) All right, you put a bear and a tiger in front of Jimmy Butler on a basketball court, he's going to yell back to uh, Jordan, Gordon Dravich, Gordon Drogic and uh, Eric Spolster and the guys, who wants bear meat? Who wants tiger meat for dinner tonight? Because that's what I'm bringing to the table, bitches. Bring it on. I mean, that's Jimmy Butler. So, it'll be interesting moving forward, you know, which will is going to, uh, is going to come out of this. All right. <sighs> I'm done. I'm out of here. I'm good. I am very good. Feel so much better. I hope everybody stays safe. I hope everybody does what they need to do to be better human beings. I'm going to start with myself to see what I can do to be better. I hope you follow my lead. I'm going to follow your lead. Let's be good. Let's be good. Let's be better than good. Let's be great. So I'm not saying good night tonight. You know who I'm going to have say good night tonight? In concert. Live. Back in the mid-70s, singing their tune Sugar by Honey Bunch, The Legendary, The Fantastic, Levi Stubbs, Lords Payton Jr., Obie Benson, and Duke Fakir, the one and only four tops. Gimme that music, fellas. Gimme that music. Turn it out.